There's war going on in this world. A war on freedom. He's acting outside of his authority by saying you can't put something that you want in your own body. That's your own personal choice. And can't nobody take that from you, you know? You're one of these taxpayers, and these are all your documents, and this is how we're going to rob you. Fucked up, man. It's more war, it's more spending, it's more debt, and it's less freedom. We don't do that here. Some people think that you can't be radical and pragmatic. This is what we need, is a pragmatic radicalism. Not moderation. Hardcore radicalism but smart shit. It's not sitting in a fucking basement with a bunch of fucking nerds. You don't know shit, and that's the thing. You have to talk to people who think differently than you. Like his focus is not how horrible the government is. It's how wonderful liberty and freedom are. That's what drives us. People are coming together more and more and more and more as the government has been failing us. We're just getting started. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Fight for Liberty Live. Today, we have a great guest for you. He's a candidate. We don't talk to candidates all that often, but we're going to talk to a fun candidate about a fun race and some fun stuff that they did before they got into politics. But first, as always, you got to get high before you can listen to politics. Like, I understand that nobody actually watches this show sober. So whether you're going to Nug of Knowledge to buy some cannabis or uh, you're going to your local guy on the street or you're drinking or, or doing lines of something to make this show bearable, uh, we'd appreciate it if you did that Nug of Knowledge. Um, Nugofknowledge.com, you can get all of your premium cannabis needs. We've got Delta 8 carts. We've got like CBD tea and honey and all sorts of fun things. And they're adding gummies. And now you can sign up for a monthly subscription to Nug of Knowledge. So you can, you'll actually get a vape cart sent to you once a month. No strings attached. No like having to go reorder the stuff. It's wonderful. And with all of their great new flavor varieties, you won't have to try the same kind of Delta 8 twice for like an entire year. So go on over to nugofknowledge.com. Use promo code F4L to get 10% off. And, uh, and yeah, and I hope you enjoy the show, um, whether you are under the influence of anything or not. Next up, we got Harrison Kemp. Good guy. Great candidate. He is running for governor of Maine right now. And he already, I say this every episode, but he already has some really awesome key endorsements, has a really awesome team that he's building. So uh, really excited about that race up in Maine. Go on over to KempForMaine.com if you want to check it out. Go to the slash Fight for Liberty if you'd like to donate. We'd love it if you did that. Like 10, 15 bucks goes a long way for races like this. So please go to KempForMaine.com. But tonight, we have a career public defender who has spent his adult life uh, helping fight back the power of the state. Now he's continuing to do that through a race against everyone's favorite bartender, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. So I'm super excited to talk about both pieces of that, uh, along with Mr. Jonathan Howe. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I, I take great offense to that introduction because everyone's favorite bartender is, in fact, me. Uh, I bartended Ooh. for two and a half years, almost three years, uh, saving up for law school, and then I continued to bartend part-time uh, throughout law school. Uh, 
and I, I did get some pretty good Yelp reviews. Someone even shot, shouted me out and spelled my name wrong. So I, I do believe that I am everyone's favorite bartender. Well, there you go. And and uh, so you even have a lot in common with your opponent right off the bat. That's uh, that's helpful. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we have a lot in common. I mean, how, how would you boil down her platform if you were just to put it in platitude? It would be peace, justice, and a clean planet. And she thinks that you know government intervention is a way that you get to all three of those things. So what I did is I made my campaign platform, peace, justice, and a clean planet through liberty. Because you're not going to get there through the government. You're going to get there by enforcing individual liberty, by protecting individual rights. And so I'm trying to run on the pretty much the same platform as her, except everything the opposite. I like that a lot. I like that you're not trying to run, and we'll get we'll get into this a little bit more later, but I like that you're not uh, just trying to run as as actually the opposite of her you're trying to run as the better version of her it's not you're not just taking like all the right wing talking points and all the anti aoc talking points like yeah, a lot I mean, of third party candidates I mean, look people who got excited about her are people who voted for her and they they did that because they believed that her strategies would get us to an end goal so i'm saying you know, we all agree on the end goal like we all want those three things we all want peace we all want justice we all want a clean planet but we don't get this for government. And I, I can break down each individual thing. I can show how government will make things worse and how protecting individual liberty will make things better. And that's essentially the approach. And if, God forbid, there is a chance I don't win, the tiny chance of that, if, the, if that happens, at least I've put out that the Libertarian Party is about these things. I've mm -hmm. done it in a major race. And not only are we about it, but we've been about them for 51 years now. You know, if, if we talk about you know peace at home and abroad, ending the drug war, ending the wars overseas, we've had that in our charter for 50 years. Mm -hmm. If we talk about you know justice, you know again, ending the drug war, uh, you know stopping family separation, you know getting out of people's you know uh, marital affairs, all that type of stuff. We've been leaders for 50 years. If we talk about a clean planet, the way that you get to that, what is the planet? It's a bunch of stuff where people live, where their bodies are, where their property is. And so, if we respect property rights and bodily autonomy. We are the party of a green planet. We should be the green party. And we have to put that stuff forward. We have to show that a real libertarian world where it's not just big corporations propped up by the Federal Reserve and government subsidies and you know, government contracts and all of that who are given you know, free leeway to destroy the planet in an actual free market, not a corporatist market, there would be a lot less pollution. There'd be a lot less microplastic in your water. There'd be a lot less you know, uh, you know, pollution in your air and in everything. And if we can show people that, and if we can show them that like, we have the same good intentions as progressives, except we actually have a plan, then I, I think we become the party that actually gains momentum in the next decade. I think we're, we could be the next second party. I like that. I like that approach a lot. Um, and yeah, I've, I've always, uh, as far as like anarchy and libertarianism goes, uh, when talking about it with people, you know, they always like throw out like every possible argument against or like why why a libertarian society won't be a utopia mm -hmm. and i've it always kind of strikes me cuz like we're not necessarily arguing a utopia we're arguing that if you take out the coercive murderous like monopoly on on violence system that is the government out of it, it'll be better, like significantly better. Not perfect, 
better. Yeah, and the key to that is what is utopia to each individual? Like my utopia is very different than your utopia, I assume. I mean, we live in different places now. We chose to be that way because we feel more comfortable and better where we are. You know, utopia is individualized. And that's all we're asking for. We're asking that everyone can get to their own utopia or can at least approach it asymptotically, you know, getting very, very closer and closer without ever reaching it. Uh, you know, I like to make the argument that you know, there's all these like utopian, you know, colonies and like communes that still exist out there. I was doing a road trip out west with my wife uh, about a year ago and we stopped at a Hutterite colony. And they're, uh, I think they're a Mennonite like subgroup. They do use technology, but they all live together kind of like the Amish in like, you know, big farming communities. They use technology, but they, they don't really interact with the outside world. They don't send their kids to school. They don't really pay taxes because they're a nonprofit, but all their property is communal. Based. That, that's left anarchy. That's left libertarianism. You know, that, that's somewhere on that scale. And, you know, that's utopia for them. They can leave if they want. You know, it, it's not like, uh, you, know, uh, you know, some communist you know, government where you can't leave the country and they put a wall to keep people in. It, it's a religious community. If you don't want to be in it, you can leave. I mean, there might be social ramifications. You lose all your friends. But no one is there with a gun with a wall saying don't leave. So there are, you know, what people have sought out as their own utopias that exist here. I mean, if, if they didn't want to live like that, they wouldn't be living like that. There's lots of very, very happy people in the world who have sought out what they wanted and gotten it. There's fewer of them in less free countries, which means there's fewer of them in America right now than there was you know, two years ago. Mm -hmm. Which is t just tangibly true. Yeah, a lot of those kinds of communities have, have gotten uh, severely fucked by what's going on over the last couple of years. Um, so I'm curious what, uh, like, when did you come to the realization that governments didn't work and that we needed a, a different or better system, like change had to happen? I mean, it was all of a sudden and gradual that, that there was a snap <laughs> in about ninth or 10th grade. I think it was 10th grade. And I, we had to read a book for biology class and I chose a book called the plutonium files. Didn't know anything about it. But it's about government experimentation using plutonium and uranium on American citizens without their consent or knowledge. Like they would literally go around to hospitals and just inject people who they thought were about to die with tons of radioactive material to see what happened. They would partner with uh, Quaker Oats and with orphanages, and they would put radioactive material into the oatmeal and feed it to orphans who no one cared about and see what happened to them over their lifetime. Just disgusting stuff. And I'm here in a school, a government school, <laughs> and I'm thinking about maybe there's a chance that there, there's not an incentive for my best interest here. Like, you know, there might be an idea for like, we, everyone should be educated, but like, they're not looking out for me. There's no reason for the government to look out for everybody. And it's clear that they don't. If they're willing to go, you know, find patients in a hospital and inject them with, you know, 30 milligrams of pure plutonium, like they'll do anything. You know, they're cutting off prisoners testicles with like radioactive laser, you know, radioactive devices, just like shooting to, this is, it, this is a Pulitzer Prize winning book. You can look it up as a Wikipedia page. And the most incredible part is that the guy who oversaw all of this is a gentleman named Harold Hodge, now dead, thank God. Uh, he was also the father of something that I have not come to a conclusion about, which is called the fluoridation of water. He was the one who pushed for fluoridation of water all across the US, and he was also the one who pushed for injecting people with plutonium into their veins without their knowledge or consent. So I found that interesting. And the moment that 
book hit my brain. I'm just like, I'm a crazy person now. And like, there's no stopping it. <laughs> and it's going to keep going from here. Uh, and then in, in their class, I had to do a report on why marijuana should be illegal. So I started looking up into it. And it's like 2006 or seven at this point. And I find this old guy named Ron Paul ranting about it on the internet. I'm like, yeah, he's right. This guy's right. Who the hell is this guy? And then I became a Paul bot for five years, five, five and a half years. Which I'm proud of. I've I've no regrets about that time. Um, and then I just kind of, you know, Ron Paul lost the 2012 primary. Obviously, I kind of floated around for a bit, and I was like, oh, I'll go join the Libertarian Party officially. And everyone's like, oh, we don't like Ron Paul here. I was like, well, <laughs> screw, screw you, then. Like, I'm I'm not coming. And then 2018, Larry Sharp ran. You know, I, I've been like into politics and like watching it, but Larry Sharp ran. I was like, that guy. Like, mm. I'm, I'll join the party for that guy. And so I've been a, a Libertarian, you know, officially. Uh, since then, we got our ballot line for a little bit, uh, and then 2020 came. They locked down our our entire city. They destroyed our entire community. They you know, destroyed small businesses. I said, I'm running for office. It was too late. Uh, so here I am, two years later, next election. There we go. I love it. Yeah, uh, Larry. Larry is the reason that I actually got back involved in the party myself too. I I had just moved to the city while he was running, and I kind of got. You know, you know, when you move, you just kind of focus on other things of like getting your life back to, you know, some kind of a solid point and like figuring you're too busy figuring out which deli near your apartment is the good one and which ones yeah. suck. Like you got to you, you got some priorities to sift through. But uh, Larry finally pulled me back into the party after probably about six months of picking delis. So I did an event uh, with Larry up in the Bronx for the Bronx Libertarian Party, which is trying to get started back up again. Hmm. So if you're watching the Bronx, uh, please reach out. Uh, they have a Facebook page. Just look them up, hit out. We, we need to get a minimum number of members to be an official party there. Uh, so to check out. But we, we did an event there. And, you know, I gave up, went up and gave my, you know, little, you know, dumb speech. And I said, you know, okay, Larry just is about to speak. Who here was a Libertarian before they heard of Larry Sharp? And one, or I think it was like one out of like eight of the people there raised their hands. And all the people there were libertarians. Like they all became libertarians because of Larry Sharp. In that one small, you know, very, very limited group who were there to see Larry Sharp. So I know it, it, it's a skewed number, but like no one ever paid attention to libertarians before. No one even bothered trying to get us off the ballot before. Like Larry Sharp brought enough attention to us that they had to change the law to take away our ballot line because he got enough votes to get a ballot line finally. Like mm -hmm. he, he changed the entire game and it's, it's incredibly encouraging. Uh, I, I am so thrilled to, that I have the opportunity to be on the ballot next to Larry Sharp on the same line, like on the same column uh, in November, assuming we get the signatures, which I am assuming. Uh, it, it just blows my mind. I was going around to everyone telling them to vote for Larry Sharp. I got my now mother-in-law to vote for Larry Sharp like within a month of meeting her. Uh, nice. It's very conservative, so I don't know how that worked, but uh, it did. Well, I mean, Mark Molinero was also just a, a piece of shit. Like, it's just a, it's a terrible candidate. Like, the GOP didn't even didn't even try with that. What one. was he the candidate? I don't even remember. I don't even remember. The, I've never even looked at the Democrat or Republican line for the last twelve years. I've never even considered voting for one. So nice. I don't know who was running. I'll, I'll vote someone someone I know in who lives in the district if it's like a, a local district thing. Mm -hmm. But I will I will never vote for a Democrat or Republican. I respect that. I uh, 
I haven't since 2016. Last Democrat I voted for was uh, Chuck Schumer. <laughs> like what? 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 Mm-hmm. It was my. No, so it was my. This is now a therapy session. <laughs> it was my first election. Um, I was 19. I it was 2016. I voted for Gary Johnson, Bill Weld, and Chuck Schumer. That was my ballot. Um, I. You're Yeah. I was 19. The thing is, of the three Senate candidates on my ballot, there was a some Republican who I didn't had never heard of, Chuck Schumer, and some Libertarian I had never heard of. And I'm like, well, Chuck Schumer, I know. Like, I've met. Like, I've met Chuck Schumer probably at least three times at this point, and I've met him three or four times since then. Like, he's a good senator from, from like... From what I knew growing up, like he's the only statewide politician in New York that actually gives a shit about upstate. Even if I only, even if I didn't follow politics at all, I would never vote for Chuck Schumer because when I graduated from Hofstra University, 2011, May 2011, uh, one day after the world was supposed to end, if you remember the May 21st, 2011 uh, end of the world date, so that's when I graduated college. Uh, it was a four-hour outside ceremony out in Long Island, you know, in the you know, hot hot, hot day. We're all in our robes. Four-hour ceremony. But no, it was a five-hour ceremony because someone, Chuck Schumer, showed up unannounced, uninvited, and gave an hour speech about himself, bragging about how he had never had a job and how he personally killed Osama bin Laden. And I'm not joking. Like how he, like the, the bills that he passed and the funding that he provided and we took him out. And what is this guy doing? <laughs> This man is unhinged. Like, I, I knew he wasn't a great senator. You know, I was, I was already a small libertarian at the time, so I just didn't like him by default. But him show, like, he literally bragged about how he went right from college into elected politics and that he's never had a job. He thought that was, like, a, a great thing to tell people. It, it was like a slap in the face to all of us going trying to find jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, oh, hey, I'm richer than any of you will ever be, and I haven't worked a day in my life. But... Good luck out there in that workforce thing that I've never, that I've never heard of. Never been a part of. Never been a part of. Yeah, yeah. I still kind of, I still really regret that vote, especially because like Alex Merced was the Libertarian on the ballot, um, and and since then, like I've known and and gotten to to love Alex, and he's a wonderful, amazing, fantastic human being. His wife is a wonderful woman love them so much um and very much regret having not cast him alex has voted for me i haven't voted for alex so that's that hurts every time someone has that experience of damn i shouldn't have voted for chuck schumer i should have voted for that third party guy you don't forget that left hopefully that adds up you know hopefully that happens more than people die off right just naturally like so eventually that number of people increases as a relative share of the population mm-hmm. uh, and we can get more than two parties. So would you say that your work through uh, like working for the state and with the state and, and everything that you've done has given you more or less faith in humanity? Well, I don't work with or for the state. Uh, some of the funding for the organization I work for which is a, a private organization, a private nonprofit. Some of that funding comes through government contracts from the city, state, and federal government, depending on the case that we handle. 
family court, criminal court, immigration court, housing court, all of that. So we get different contracts, but we are paid to fight the state. Mm -hmm. And if we do not deliver zealous advocacy, then we are failing uh, you know, you know, legal ethics. If you are not fighting as hard as possible for your client, whether you believe them or not, whether you like them not or not, whether they're a good person or not, no matter what, then you're failing because you're not the judge. You're the lawyer. There's a judge for that. You know, the, the jury for that. If you're in in criminal court, not in my courtroom. Um, but yeah, so I, I I make it very clear because you know, I'll, I'll meet someone the the day after the worst day of their life when their kids have been ripped from their care in the middle of the night, and I'll call them and be like, hey, I'm a I'm a public defender. I work with this organization. This is my name, blah blah. And they'll be like, oh, like you're a government lawyer. You work with them. And like that's the first barrier I have to overcome, which is no, I hate that. That's why I do this job. And sometimes I'll, you know, I'll tell a personal story or, or I'll, I'll mention how long I've been doing this and what type of cases I have done. Uh, but I'll, I'll go through, you know, something to gain a little bit of, of trust. And then hopefully once they've seen me in action in the courtroom or in the virtual courtroom as it is now, uh, we, we come to build that trust. But that, that is the exact issue that public defenders always have to overcome, which is that we work for the government and we mm -hmm. don't. And the reason that I love this job so much and the reason that, you know, win, lose, or draw this election, I will continue to be a public defender throughout my life. You know, if I become an elected uh, politician, I will serve at most two, two terms. I pledge that and then go back to public defense. The reason I love that is because I hate the government. And this is a job where the government pays you to fight the government. There's nothing better for a libertarian who likes to argue uh, than to be a public defender. or to, Nothing for a libertarian than to be a public defender. I'm not sure if I said that right. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's it's the best job on earth. You know, I, I get to see, I mean, it's the worst job on earth that I have to see, and I get to see the the horrible, horrible damage that the government does just by involving itself in people's lives. Mm -hmm. But I get the, the pride and the satisfaction of helping people get through that. Yeah, I feel like uh, getting elected to Congress would be the only other situation that you could be in where you would be getting paid by the government to fight the government yeah and 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 only the, the only people who can say that the only you know, you know aoc essentially said that she was going there to fight the establishment and you know establishment government what's the difference who cares um so she she said that uh but she's a career politician now she just needs to get reelected. you know e even if she went in with the absolute best of intentions and i have no reason to doubt them but even if she did she now needs to be reelected. She now needs to be accepted by the party. She needs to be able to get the you know, the, the funding and on the, the, the committees and all, all of that. Like she has to play ball. She has to trade her vote on this, trade her vote for that, and think into the future. If I give Nancy Pelosi this, this, what will I get in three years from now when I'm running for XYZ or asking for ABC? She has to think like that because she's going to be doing this for life. She is a politician. The only reason people know who she is is because she's a politician. Mm -hmm. That has to end. Like we're not going to get past this crap. We're never going to get out of this quagmire until we end career politics. And you just do it two ways: you put term limits in. Um, that would require a constitutional amendment, unfortunately. So we have to start by self-imposing them. So I'm saying two two terms maximum. And I'm asking everyone to do it. And I actually saw a Republican. I I wish I could remember his name just out of respect. I can't remember, but he's running for Senate uh, here in New York. Um, and he literally took the text from my website word for word, where I said, you know, I will not seek more than two terms if elected. Uh, and I call on all my opponents to say the, you know, the same, but it was word for word, everything. He cut and pasted it from my website like a month later and put it on his. And I was like, great, nice. like, that's fantastic. Now his terms would be a lot longer, 
but okay, like it, it's still a start. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm totally fine with that. Um, if we can make a trend, if all my election does, all, you know, all my campaign does, um, is start, you know, five percent of candidates self-imposing term limits, great, because then we can start using that to shame the other ninety-five percent. You make it a big enough trend, you, you get some candidate who makes a trendy commercial about it and gets on CNN, make it a trend. You don't make politics a career. Because the moment politics is career, you are disincentivized from solving problems. Mm-hmm. You have to run on them. Yeah, if you solve the problems, then what are you going to run on next year? Exactly. If we had Medicare for all, or Medicare for all, what would AOC run on? So what is the very last thing that she will ever vote for? And this is what I come up against when I'm talking to progressives, which are very common here uh, in the district, which is that they're like, we don't trust AOC because she didn't vote for Medicare for all. And I'll be like, look, I'm not going to vote for Medicare for all. I think it would be an improvement over the corporate system, uh, but I think a, you know, a free market system would be better. I'm not going to vote for it. And they'll be like, okay, like at least you were honest about that. Like you still want to end the drug war. You still want to end the wars. You're still anti-mandate. You're still all of that. So, okay. Yeah. And, and they buy it just, just because they know I'm not BSing them because I'm not trying to do this as a career. Yeah. You could, you've kind of taken that, that entire argument out of it by, by like you're saying self-imposing those uh that term limit it just completely takes that that whole idea out of their heads from the beginning and allows them to actually just look at you for who you are and what you're running on yeah which is great and also yeah i mean i, I like the way that you said that like i'm not gonna vote for medicare for all i think it'd be better but i'm still not gonna vote for it <laughs> like because uh, I, mean, I, I agree wholeheartedly we have a uniquely bad system right now. Mm. We have corporations. Almost anything would be better than what we have right now. Like it would be hard to f- construct a worse system than what yeah. we have right now. Corporations are government entities, right? And right now you're forced to buy insurance from corporations, but they're not just corporations, which are government entities. They're the most highly regulated corporations, which make them even more government entities. And you are required to buy from them and you save on taxes. So you're incentivized to buy from them. Additionally, it, it it's all this craziness. So instead of just being the monopoly on force, being like pay some money, like the government's taking it, it's pay some money, the government's taking it, the shareholders are taking it, the CEO is taking it, you know, everyone, like we're we're, we're stealing from people to feed multiple families here. And so we have to steal a lot more when we do it through the corporatist system. And I'll, I'll tell that to people. So I'll be like, look, this is how you know I'm logically aligned. It'd be better just to have one person robbing us to have 25 people robbing us i just don't think we should be robbed right and if we're gonna rob people to feed families we probably shouldn't be doing it in a system where you have to rob from tens of thousands of people to feed this one family because that one family lives in a 7.5 million dollar mansion somewhere in like bel air and the feeding is like fucking quail or something i don't know <laughs> that's a deep cut man that's a that's a good reference <laughs> um but but yeah i mean like like it's it's clear at this point that there is way too much money going into this industry and into these companies like like if insurance see insurance is a thing that it was like functionally shouldn't be uh profitable not super profitable like it just I mean, yeah, doesn't make it, sense it's like an expected regular average income some years you mm-hmm. do better fewer people die 
some years you lose a lot of money because a ton of people die. Like this, this should have been a bad year for insurance. All the stocks are up. I don't know how that's working. Uh, but but the issue is that we're insuring like every little thing. Like imagine if you insured every cup of coffee you buy. Like it'd be it'd be very very silly. You'd take a long time to buy coffee. But we're essentially insuring your cup of coffee by saying that you need an insurance card to go for a checkup. Like you shouldn't need insurance to go for a checkup. That's not something you need to insure. You are sure to have a checkup. Like if you're if you're being safe with your health and smart with your health, what you're not sure of is to get hit by a car and have your leg crushed and need a you know ten thousand dollar surgery. That's what insurance is for. It's not for your regular health supplies. And you know everything would be a lot less expensive underneath if we weren't subsidizing it through this insurance system where where the price is less of an object for uh, for the person paying the bill. Uh, and you know you see this. You know my wife, who I just heard come in. She got laser eye surgery a few weeks ago. And laser eye surgery is one of the few procedures where the price just keeps going down and down and down and down. And the quality keeps going up and up and up and up. It's not covered by any government insurance. And the same thing with plastic surgery. If you want to get an enhancement of some kind, the government's not going to pay for it. I think that's smart. Uh, And so people have to compete. They have to go upper in quality and down in price. And so those things have gotten more reliable and safer. And cheaper. Yeah, like she, like almost everything in the world does when the government isn't involved. <laughs> I mean, everything should have been getting cheaper for just about everybody over the last 30 years because of computers. Like everything has become so much more efficient. Everything should have become, become cheaper. But because over the last 50 years, the Federal Reserve policy has been to pump money into equity markets and to take money from the working class, that's not happened. There's been a, a much bigger divide than there naturally would have by all these increases in productivity, which historically have helped the working class, but now are working against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100, 110% agreed. Um, the entirety of just the, the the whole healthcare, like I said, it would be it would be hard for like a fictional author to create like a, a system that's that ends up actually working out worse than what we've got. The way that we have it, it's like the worst of all the worlds combined because it's like, like, I legitimately think that like, this is just hyperbole and like headcanon or whatever, but I feel like like communist Russia probably had a more logical and efficient healthcare system. Maybe not necessarily better, uh, but like just more logical. <laughs> I mean, there were, there were fewer different systems of logic in play, like fewer different contradictions at once. We have a lot of contradictions right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's a fair assessment. Although in the last two years, we, we've gone from politicizing just the payment for healthcare and the availability of healthcare with the actual implementation of the healthcare itself. And now we're saying like, if you believe in this medicine, you're a Republican. And if you believe in this medicine, you're a Democrat. Like it, it's become totally absurd. And the problem is a lot of our medical emergencies, like a lot of our big medical issues are political. Like there is a political or government undertone. Like it does appear that we were funding research into the Wuhan lab and that you know, China and America were working together in order to you know, make new diseases. And one got out. I don't think it was on purpose that it got out, but one got out. And if you step back in time, something that's very personal to me, uh, in the 1970s when Lyme disease was discovered, about nine miles of the bird flies, and I mean that literally, nine miles from Plum Island Bioweapon Research Facility off the coast of New York, 
So nine miles from this research facility where they were working on ticks as bioweapons, this tick-borne disease starts spreading in Lyme, Connecticut. Okay, so that was 50 years ago. The man who it's named after, Willie Bergdorfer, it's called Bergdorfi, on his deathbed was like, yeah, I knew what it was and I identified it because I worked on it for the United States government for 30 years. I worked in tick bioresearch labs. We were putting different combinations of these types of bacteria into ticks, testing them in the woods of Colorado. We moved some of the work to this island off of uh, Long Island in New York. And then I saw this 20 years later and I was like, oh shit, uh, <laughs> I know exactly what that is. And now it's named after him. And just two years ago, right after I got Lyme disease and was misdiagnosed and suffered horribly, um, a congressman from New Jersey put into a spending bill that the Pentagon needs to look into the lab origins of Lyme disease, the modern Lyme disease outbreak. And it got voted down by the Senate. Like they had put the funding in, but then there was authorization for a program and the Senate voted it down. What, why is, like, why is the funding, why? I'm assuming? It's one of it's one of the it's one of the fastest spreading, most debilitating, and most underdiagnosed diseases in the country. It it, it was the most horrible experience of my life, um, and many many people get it and don't know it because everyone thinks you get a big rash when you get Lyme disease. Less than half of people get that, according to some studies, or fewer than half of people. Um, so it, it, it's very very hard to diagnose. It feels like a lot of other stuff that just lasts forever, and that makes sense because we designed it that way. The whole point was to fill huge balloons filled with ticks, fly them over the Soviet Union, and then let them pop. And to let the ticks rain down, and when we need to do our ground invasion, they're all you know, messed up with Lyme disease. Like That was, that was the, the, the point of the project, and this is what the man who it's named after said. And so we, we need to be looking into you know, the polit not just the politi politi politicization of the treatment of COVID, but we need to take a step back and say, we have been weaponizing health and health outcomes for decades, if not centuries at this point. Like what is out there? We need a catalog. All bioweapon you know, research labs need to be shut down unilaterally. We should leave. The US should be like, we have 20 bioweapon labs. We're turning them all down. All these bio level four labs, we're turning them all down. We're gonna pick an island in the middle of the ocean and we're gonna open up an international research facility there. Anyone's welcome to come, we'll fund it. You can come do your crazy research there. Nowhere else. If we find you're doing it, we won't do, you know, we won't have official relations with you. Something like that. Because one day there's going to be a COVID that leaks out of a lab that's going to be like the designer one. And it's mm -hmm. going to be the one that's going to kill everybody. I mean, it's just a, it's, it's a numbers game at this point. And if we don't shut it down, and we're the leaders in it, so we should be the ones to shut it down, we're all screwed. And we have a very long history showing that this has been going on. And we have a very long history showing that it cannot be contained. You cannot contain these things forever. And we need to end the bioweapons cold war. Yes. Yes, we do. The It's interesting. I honestly didn't know uh, everything that you just said about uh, Lyme disease. I just ran to... Uh, learning things on the show. I swear, I learned I learned more from doing this show than I ever did from school. Um, I mean, right, you're asking people questions. It's not like you already know what I'm going to say, or else it would, it would be boring. Right. Um, but it is it is a little bit just weird and uh, and hard to wrap your head around, like that. How many things 
could have escaped and like like so just like we know about covid and lyme disease but like these are we we know about thousands there are thousands of documented incidents and i did a little bit of research in february of 2020 when i came back from china and i was freaking out about this disease coming over and everyone was not paying attention to me because donald trump was being impeached and so i started doing research into the wuhan institute of virology and the type of stuff that they they were researching um and you this type of stuff has been going on forever, and the leaks have been reported forever. Uh, SARS, the original SARS, I think it first came in like 2001. Three or four years later, it leaked from a Beijing lab. This is admitted in the Chinese official new- newspapers. It leaked twice. People, There were SARS outbreaks around Beijing twice from the same lab of SARS, the same type of you know, virus, same shape we're talking about now that leaked out of that lab. The UK had a mad cow disease leak out. The U.S. is a Michigan lab that has had multiple releases of, uh, of viruses and, and bacteria that were not supposed to get out. If you actually go back and Google it and you just set the time period to any time before January of 2020, you will find literally thousands of examples and, and articles about this. And all of them are impossible to find now unless you actually go in and adjust the dates on like Google News or whatever. Um, but th- this happens all the time. And if we're, you know, we're getting better at technology, we have CRISPR now, you know, we can cut genes in half, we have mRNA technology, like, we're going to get better and better and better at it. it, Compare the first musket to the first rifle to the first, you know, atomic bomb, we're we're going at that pace of getting better at this stuff. And that's not a good thing. Like, it's not helpful to anybody. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine if we were putting this much energy and time and money into curing diseases instead of creating them? Or even just preventing. Like, I, 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 it wasn't like a, a joke, but s- someone pointed out they're like, you couldn't find a better disease than COVID 19 uh, that will target Americans and no one else. Because of the disease that targets an older population, which we're starting to get with comorbidities, which we have more of when it comes to your diabetes, when it comes to obesity, and a lot of these you know, are, are side effects of poverty, which is another you know, so, so-called comorbidity, even though it's not health-related, but it, it's you know, environment-related. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have all those in like huge clusters of populations. Like If you wanted to design a disease just to get Americans and you just had a stereotyped but also somewhat accurate view of us, it'd be like, well, design one that kills old fat people with diabetes and unfortunately like, i'm not trying to make light of it I, mm-hmm. it's not really, really glib and it, it is and i you know I, I don't mean any offense to anybody who's lost anybody because it's horrible but like if you wanted to design a, a disease to do that you could like there's some diseases that target children there's some diseases that only target the very old this one targets that cross-section and that's that's interesting to me uh, and it's even more interesting because we know that we were working on it together with china Everyone wants to use this to start another war with China or to, you know, to nuke the entire planet over Taiwan. That's not what this is about. We were funding this. We were working together on this. This is not an international issue. This is not U.S. versus China. This is the people versus the people who are trying to kill us all with their insane experiments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I, I did hear that talking point a lot of like, or not a lot. I won't say a lot. That's an over-exaggeration. But I heard the talking point of like, China developed this to specifically to like hurt Americans and not uh, most Chinese people. Cause you know, there aren't, there isn't a whole lot of overweight old people with diabetes in China. Like they have a pretty low percentage of that. So 
uh, yeah, I've, I have heard multiple people talking about like, this was definitely engineered just as like a bioweapon against the US. And it's like, no. I mean, part of it, you know, I'll, I'll throw out just so I don't sound crazy, you know, correlation is not causation. And it, you know, no matter what disease comes through, having comorbidities like like diabetes is always going to be a problem, whether it's you know, cancer or Ebola or, or whatever it is you happen to get. So part of this is me speculating and overanalyzing. But it's just interesting that it's a, it's a what if. And it's interesting that we were working on it together, that it was not just a Chinese lab. It was a Chinese lab was direct U.S. funding on this exact topic on bat-borne diseases. And it's just like any time there's a disaster, you know, you know this, anytime there's a non-natural disaster, we try to bang war drums in one direction or other. Oh, Russia, you know, China, or you know, the, the Germany, you know, whatever it is, we always try to bang the war drums. We, we took this and ran with it. You know, th there's people who, I mean, look around New York City. Chinese people are getting pushed onto the subway tracks. My, my wife is from China, and you know, she's pretty tough. She's a, a, a black belt. She can beat me up. She can probably beat just about anybody up. But, like, she's far more worried than she has been any time in her life prior. You know, she's lived in New York City longer than I have. She's been here 14 or 15 years, and it's never been like this before, where, like, being Chinese, you will get, you know, comments and spit on. And especially if you want to be someone who wants to be a little bit rebellious, maybe not wear your mask every single second of your life, and you start being called a carrier, and like, oh, you're one of them. You brought this over here. It's like, no. <laughs> Ironically, the two of us were actually trying to tell everyone to buy masks back in January 2020. I mean, the random stranger on the subway doesn't know that. Um, but it, I mean, it, it's such a perfect design to be like, not only was it from China, it's from them being nasty and eating bats. Look at these cute little bats. I'll look at them, eat them alive. All those disgusting Chinese people. It was such perfect propaganda. It's like those drawing, the Dr. Seuss drawings of uh, the Japanese, you know, where they have like the big buck teeth and the wearing glasses and, you know, find their play. And, you know, it's these horribly offensive caricatures. And we just ran with it. Like the whole country ran with it for a while. Eventually, some people were like, well, you know, it's a little bit much. But half the country still thinks that Chinese people eating bats alive is what caused all of this. Where does that, and, where, does that where, where does that put us? Yeah. And it was the same, uh, is the same thing with, was it SARS or Ebola? One of those two was the exact same story. Like they couldn't have come up with something new. I'm even. pretty sure it was another furry animal that had to be eaten and had to be eaten in a horrible way of some kind. I'm pretty sure it was a bat from a, like, I'm <laughs> like, that's the thing. Like, I'm pretty sure it's the, we're talking the same animal in a wet market. Like I bet, I bet if you went, if you like had a time machine and went back to like November, 2019 and you polled everyone in the United States, if they knew what the fuck a wet market was like, even like, do you know what those two words next to each other actually mean in any context and maybe like 10% of the U.S. would have known what a wet market was, let alone like the things that go on there. It's funny because in November of 2019, I was packing to go to China for three and a half weeks with my now wife. <laughs> uh, we, we left in December right after Christmas and we stayed there. We came back January 17th, 2020. And that's when I started being like, ah, everyone. And no one gave a shit because they were impeaching in, in, in Trump. Um, mm -hmm. but, but the interesting thing about that is she, always, like, she was looking forward to it. She's like, we're going to go to the animal market. They didn't call it a wet market. They called it an animal market. And we went there, and like there's different kinds. There's one where they're like butcher markets, but there's also live animal markets you can go to. And we went to that, and like it's something you would have seen in the U.S. in like the 80s or 90s. Like for me, I was like, oh, look at all those like rabbits in one cage. Like look at all those cats and you know in 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 one cage. Like oh, I, I don't like that. I, I think that's you know sad. 
But honestly, like I've seen stuff like that in the U.S. I've seen zoos worse than that in the U.S. So it, it didn't really bother me, you know, as much as it, you know, you might think it would as, as an animal lover. Um, but even going to like the, the the butchers there, like yeah, they have exotic animals. But, like, have you been to Flushing? Like, go to Flushing. They have entire tubs filled with hundreds of different types of live fish, and they'll just pull them out and kill them for you right there. They, they, you know, it, here in Astoria, I can go to a live animal market five blocks from me. It's up near the brewery, up near the uh, the Con Ed plant. You can go in. There'll be a bunch of ducks. There'll be a bunch of chickens. And you point to the one that you want, and they go and they kill it. And then they they do it right in front of you. Like that's why I haven't done it before. Um, but it's like a, a live animal market. Like what yeah. are we talking about? We do that here. Like it, we we love pointing our nose down on other people. Like when it was Islamic terror, we're like look at those crazy religious people. Like but not the ones who live here. And then it's like when, when it's you know Chinese red market, like look at those horrible you know animal you know killing practices. But we're not going to look at the factory farms we have here. Uh, mm-hmm. They're destroying the planet, by the way. Uh, not through cow farts, but by shitting into all our waters and destroying the whole natural ecosystem. But that's just my opinion. To take this conversation in a significantly more but less serious route, uh, um, have you seen Harold and Kumar? The original one, many years ago. Uh, Have you seen the second one, the uh, Guantanamo Bay? You know, I I think I saw it on TV partly in college. Fair enough. I don't remember. Um. Well, I, so I actually, I just watched, um, I watched the Christmas one, which is the third one during Christmas season this year. And then my dad and I actually just watched the other two together. Like for me, for the first time for him, probably like the 20th, um, like last month, okay. but the, the second, <laughs> the second movie completely revolves around, um, they're flying and, um, the Indian dude has like a very like weird bong that he's created to smoke weed on the plane without there being any gas gets mistaken for a bomb. And the entire movie is them running away from the feds uh, because they think that they're terrorists. Good. That's good. And like the entire movie is so freaking racist and just like horrible like i don't think they could make the movie anymore like even though it's only been 20 years but like i really don't think that they could even portray someone to be as racist as these characters are but like i remember 2002 2003 like it was like that like and the the scene is like when that you first meet the guy from the fbi or the the, i guess he's from the department of Homeland, homeland security um he comes in and it's like Harold and Kumar. And he's like, uh, Iraq and North Korea are teaming up. And it's like, <laughs> well, you know, who you have to, to thank for that. It's, uh, David from Mr. David from who's now, you know, paragon of the left and, you know, best friend with Sam Harris, you know, enlightened atheist. who I used to love. Then he started having known war criminal and known war, uh, you know, uh, propagandist David from he's the one who invented the axis of evil. He's the one who somehow connected Islamic terror to North Korean communism, to which there is no connection other than we don't like them because we want to take something that they have. And it might not be a great place to live, but it's not where we live, so it's not our business. And we make it worse by you know, blockading them and, and antagonizing them and calling them the axis of evil. You know, Iraq, well, Iraq, Iran, and, uh, and North Korea, that was it, right? Um, the the most disappointing thing 
I thought, okay, well, the Democrats have gone hard anti-war. It's like 2008, nine, you know, you know 2003 through 10. They went hard anti-war. And I was like, okay, they, they are the anti-war party. So if the Libertarian Party gets bigger, we'll have two anti-war parties and we'll be an anti-war country. But that's not what happened. It just switched back around. And now we have a Democratic president talking about, you know, starting nuclear war. And, you, know, you know, we had Obama with the drone program. All, all the same stuff. Um, it, it's incredibly disappointing. Uh, but you learn from these things. Like You learn not to trust these people. If you are not running on a logically coherent platform of peace, not just like, I, I don't want this specific war because of X, Y, Z, but war is wrong all the time unless it's to defend yourself. And unless you can connect that to all your other views, like putting human beings in cages like animals is wrong all the time unless there's an imminent risk of you know bodily harm from this person and, and you do that for everything then then i know that you're a liar and you're just doing it to get elected but if you don't have a, a logically coherent peace platform there's no point in paying attention to you and you're, you're not getting my one measly vote here in new york which is not a swing state i like that i like that system um <laughs> my one measly vote um, <laughs> Uh, what would you say to a law student or someone who's considering possibly a career in law uh, who's thinking that either the schooling is too long or that the system is too far gone and it might not be worth it? I think the second one, put that away because it is the system. The way you can be most involved in the system, uh, the, the only way you can change the system is by being either completely involved in the system or completely destroying the system. If you go out to completely destroy the system, you're going to get arrested very fast. And I don't advise that. It's not legal advice, but don't do that. Um, <laughs> we can break it apart. We can dismantle it. And to dismantle a building, you have to get inside the building. To dismantle the system, you have to get inside the system. So go to law school. Apply to every law school in your area. Go to the one that gives you a full ride. That's what I did. You just you know, take the LSAT. You apply to the one that you get into that gives you a full ride. You go to that. You take out as little loans as possible. And you go to, into public interest. Now, some people will be like, oh, just take out as many loans as you want because of the public interest loan forgiveness program. So if you do public interest for 10 years, they get rid of your loans. So in theory, my student loans will be gone in 10 years, although I think I'll have paid them off by then. Um, you, you, you can't rely on a government promise. Like You can just vote that out. So mm -hmm. don't rely on that. If you're going to go make it a, a frugal decision, don't put yourself into debt. Go, go to the best local law school that will you know, essentially pay you to go there. And, and just do it. it. It's not as hard as people make it out. It's just hard if you're doing other stuff at the same time. If you're trying to work your way through law school, it, it, it's, it's possible. It definitely is possible. If you're working a full-time job, you can't do it. Like it, It's just, it's too much. Um, but I, I say do it because I went from enjoying my job. I love bartending. I love talking to people. I love giving them beer and talking about beer. I'm really into it. Uh, and now like, most of the time during the day, like I'm really upset and stressed out and like, like, oh my God. But when I sit back and think about it, I'm like, look, I, I just spent 10 hours pulling my hair out. And instead of getting a hundred people drunk, like I got one baby home to its mother. And like, that's awesome. And there's, there's no better feeling than that. And like that happens like weekly. The opposite happens just as often as, if not more, if that's more. Uh, but like when, when you put in a hard day's work and you, change someone's life you you take them from the worst day of their life a week ago or a month ago or a year ago to now the, the second best day of their life you know after this child being born 
it's 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 really rewarding. I I love it. I I couldn't imagine doing something else, and I didn't even know this was a job that exists. Fighting to get people's kids back. I I, I didn't realize it was in a whole industry of just churning children uh, through the foster care system of of taking them away from parents without due process. Uh, and while it's frustrating, and I got literally banging my head against the wall some days. Um, I love it and I'll, I'll serve my two terms and I'm going back to this because this is where the fight is. I, I'd love to legislate myself out of a job, probably not in four years. Like I don't think we're gonna get rid of the system and, you know, and fix the communities that we've destroyed in four years. <laughs> but I, 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 it's the most rewarding job on the planet. And I, I highly recommend anyone uh, go to law. If you think you wanna do it, to it. You only live once. Hell yeah. I like the, you, you know, you can't dismantle a building from the outside uh, kind of analogy. Um, well, you can, but it's a lot messier. And you're, mm -hmm. you, you are more likely to get hurt if you're trying to dismantle a building from the outside. Let's put it that way. It's very Not true. just people inside the building. And, you know, they, they have rights too. But like, but let's just be completely self-centered. You're, you're going to hurt yourself. Like, it's, it's not an easy task. Um, and we have a pretty big, complicated building here. We don't know where all the supports are. We don't know all the structures. You know, the black budget, who knows? You know, all this UFO stuff coming out, like how much of a black budget do they have to spend in order to make all the special effects? I'm not sure. I like that. Um, <laughs> so what are... Like just like maybe one or two of some of the more rewarding uh, or more interesting stories from your career. So you know, I I, I obviously can't tell uh, like individual yeah. stories, and I know you know that. Um, but you know, it, I won't even tell like a, a specific story. But when I I think I said this earlier, when, when I first meet a client, whether it's in person back when we were still in person, I work remotely still. Uh, or now remotely, when I meet them, it's the worst day of their life, or it's within 24 hours of that day. Because when your child is removed to New York, they have 24 hours to file a case. And when they file a case, you meet me, or you meet one of my, my coworkers or someone from another organization. And often I have five or 10 minutes to get this person's entire life history, all the relevant information on you know what's going on with their family and this child. And you know, were you born here? Do you have citizenship here? You know. Have you ever been diagnosed with mental illness? You know, this type of stuff, but you have to do it in a relatable way because you need the person to open up to this person they just met, this you know, dorky white guy who they've never seen before in their life wearing a cat tie. And, and they, you know, I need to get all this information. We're about to be in court. We're going to be in court in five minutes, and I need to know all this, and we need to start fighting. Um, and there's been you know, many cases where I, I will meet a client on day one, and we will be in court every day or every other day. We're doing an ongoing hearing months and months and months and then at some point it'll be over and i'll get an email and it'll be the judge's decision and sometimes that can be the worst thing uh, and you read it and you can't believe that you lost and sometimes it can be the best thing and but then the second worst and best thing is then calling your client and telling them uh and walking them through it uh i'm, try I'm trying to think of a story that i can tell that's uh generalized um Okay, I'll tell this. Let's say that you're a mother and you live somewhere that's not the Bronx and you have a baby. You take your baby and you go home. Done. Like you, you deliver the baby, stay there, rock the baby, cut the cord, psh, done. If you have a baby in the Bronx or in parts of Brooklyn, they're going to drug test that baby and they're going to figure out what drugs you've been on 
And it doesn't matter if you have a history or not, if you have a criminal history, all the hospitals do it. You're going to get drug tested. And let's say that, you know, you smoked a joint. Yeah, maybe you shouldn't have. Maybe it's not best practice to smoke while, while you have a baby. Now you have an ACF case. Let's say you didn't know that joint had been dipped in something, whether it's fentanyl, which I used to think didn't happen, but actually does. I have a case where it actually happened. Fentanyl-laced marijuana. I don't know why they would do that, but they did. Um, but maybe it's dipped in PCP and you didn't know it. You know, All this type of stuff. Well, now all that just came up. And now not only do you have an ACS case, but you're, you're not seeing your baby. Like you're leaving the hospital and your baby's not. And you're calling me in the morning uh, without your baby. And our first step is how do we get your baby back? Because there's a newborn that you want to bond with or and that needs to bond with you. And that you know, it's naturally inclined to, to drink your breast milk and, and to, to cuddle onto you. And you're naturally inclined to do all this, you know, your postpartum. That moment of just pure panic is, is one of the, the most difficult things that, that you can deal with. But the moment where we go into court and we get the judge to order that the baby can be released to their mother so long as the mother enters a rehab facility with the baby. That, that's what I consider a win in family court. And it, it's, a, it's a huge, 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 huge relief when, when something like that happens. But when the opposite happens, and I'll be like, look, you're not going to get your baby back until you've been in rehab for some period of time. So like, you have to go to rehab now and you're not going to be able to, you know, be, uh, you'll be able to visit, but you know, COVID, so you're not going to be able to visit in person. You're going to get video chat with your baby until you've been in rehab for a period of time. And like when you're in rehab, you don't have your cell phone, so you can't even have those video visits. Like it's just these horrible decisions that you, you have to, to bring to people at a time when they're the most vulnerable to, you know, making a bad decision, when they're, they're emotionally in pain, when they're, you know, missing parts of their family, when they've just been in and out of a jail cell, uh, things like that. Um, so again, I, I don't want to tell any specific stories, but that scenario I just gave, I mean, of, of the 300 clients I've had, that's probably 40 or 50 of them are, are, are very similar to that. And it, it doesn't like where I grew up, it doesn't happen. My mom was never drug tested when she gave birth to me. Might have been some weed in my mom. I don't know. Uh, and in in the Bronx, judging by how he came out, probably you, you never know. <laughs> uh, but no, like, it, it, it's when when people say like, "Oh, there's no more institutional racism," it's like, okay, well, they didn't say all black children in the Bronx get checked for this. But what are most children in the Bronx? Like most of them aren't white, and like mm -hmm. it, it doesn't need to be like someone sitting down and be like, "How do we screw over black people?" It doesn't have to be like that. It just has to be like, well, in this place, people do drugs. And it just has to be that place that previously was oppressed racially or, or uh, you know, by, by class and now is damaged uh, by that and more susceptible to drug addiction and more susceptible, uh, you know, to the drug business and the black market. And so, you know, we're, we're judging people based on the system that we've set up for them. And it, it's totally unfair. And if it was a system of support, if it was what, family court was designed and is, you know, stated to be, which is like, we're here to support families. Great. That, that would be fantastic. And every now and then you'll get a case where you're like, whoa, everything turned out for better. Like this was a really bad situation. Someone finally like clicked, got the therapy she needed or whatever. And, and like now everything's good and you know, great. Like they're, they're on their medication again. I, I wish I could tell you that with most of my cases where the government made things better. Um, but I would say that's 5%. Maybe like, like, 
they're, they're nice when they happen, but usually it's just me telling my client, like, we need to get the government out of your life as quickly as possible, uh, or this is not going to end. And that's not what it's designed to be, because, but there's no incentive for it to be what it's designed to be. No one makes more money or like experiences job growth by having families kept together in the government. Like no one in the government is incentivized for that to happen. Like at ExxonMobil, you're incentivized if you sell more oil. At ACS, where your job is to keep families united and safe, you're not incentivized to keep families united at all. You're just incentivized to keep your agency out of the New York Post headlines. Yeah, and to continue its legitimacy, meaning that you have to prove that families have to be separated. Otherwise, you don't have a reason to exist. Mm-hmm. So similar to what we were talking earlier about politicians, like they're, you can't solve the problem completely. Otherwise, you're out of a job. Yeah, and, and the worst part is like both jobs, in theory, should attract the best people and often do. Like, again, let's give AOC, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the, the benefit of the doubt. She ran a hard campaign. She worked her ass off. You know, she, she spread her message. She was out there, megaphone. You know, really, really, really worked. I believe that she meant well when she ran. And I believe that just about every person who signs up to be a caseworker for you know, the, the child intervention service, you know, wh- wherever you are, means well and wants to protect kids. But they get into a system where there's no incentive for that to happen. Like if, if you go for a sales job, it doesn't matter how many things you sell. Eventually, you're going to get lazy and stop selling, and you're going to get paid the same. So, so who cares? And that's essentially what happens when you get into child protection work. It's just you, you get you know, some number of cases. You're investigating 15 cases at your cap. Would you rather have 15 cases of horrible, horrible abuse and death and you know, sexual you know, stuff? Or would you rather have 15 cases that are just like, oh, the mom didn't send her kids to school for 20 days in a row? You'd rather have that one. So you're not going to be in any rush to get those cases off your, your list and to close them out and to give a good deal and to move them along. But that's what the, the law says you have to do. Like those are the ones you need to move along, get them out, like you have nothing on the record. But if you can, if you can keep that on your list as a caseworker, and you don't have to be a bad person for that to happen. People respond to incentives. Like you have a crappy job. Your job is to go out, to knock on someone's door, be like, hey, we heard you're abusing your children and we're here to take them away. That's not a fun job. That might be a job that's required somewhere out there. Like th- there might be some cases where that's required. I'm not going to say it's any of my clients, but there might be one where someone has to knock on the door and take the kids away. But you're never going to get a nice reaction when that's your job. Like as a bartender, everyone's happy to see you. Like, oh, he finally came to me. Like here, here's, here's extra money for your attention, uh, even though you're already getting paid. No caseworker for, for ACS has ever gotten a tip. Let's put it that way. No one's ever happy to see them. Uh, and like when I'm cross-examining them, I have to keep that in account because like if I'm like, oh, and like you you were overly harsh or like you were you were curt with my client or you said XYZ, you cursed, they could just be like, dude, it was eleven fifty-five at night. It was my twenty-fifth case. Like they can just say something like that. If I forget that they're human too, even though I think they're doing something that is inhumane then I'm not going to win with the judge who is a human. Mm-hmm. Like, we have to show that like everyone here is trying to get along or, or it doesn't work out. Don't have to do that in criminal court In family court. It's a little more important. Yeah, I can imagine that. Um, 
Yeah, I've had some very interesting experiences with uh, some of those agencies within the, especially within the, the borough of Queens. Um, like, I've had ACS workers tell my friends that they have to go back home to their abusive family. Otherwise, they're going to call the cops on them and have them arrested and uh, labeled a delinquent, which is still a thing in New York City, by the way. We like, call it a person in need of service, something like that, but yeah. So along that line, uh, another very common story, and this is going to be very similar to like 30 or 40 of my clients' stories. You have a child. They're diagnosed with bipolar or something else. You have five other kids. They're all you know, doing great. But you have one child. But, oh, no, like, we're, we're, we're very worried about her. You bring her to a facility because she's been acting out. If she was on, you know, uh, social media saying inappropriate stuff with, you know, adult men, you know, something like that. Like some, all this stuff is happening and all you can think to do is bring her to a psychiatric facility or him to a psychiatric facility because they need help. And then that psychiatric facility says like, yeah, they're bipolar, but they don't need medication at this moment. Pick them up. And you go, no, because they're going to run away again, or they're going to hit their siblings again, or or they're going to steal this again, or, or or whatever they're going to do. Like whatever the problem is, they're going to keep doing it. And you say, no, I, I disagree with that medical decision. Can I get a second opinion? ACS case. They're coming. Now you don't have the option to take your kid home. Now the kid's removed. Now they're brought to the children's center downtown, an area known for sex trafficking. People will sit outside of this place in the park across the street and look for young people who are running away from the children's center and be like, hey, you want to make a thousand dollars, you know, whatever it is. And then that person's never seen again. And that happens all the time. There was a big article about this happening at a, a location upstate where they used to send kids and they would just disappear and they were being sold into sex trafficking. Uh, but, but it's very, very common. So they'll take a, a child, you know, 11, 15, you know, somewhere in that range who's having a mental health crisis rip them away from their parents or, and any access to their parents, put them in this horrible bunker downtown. And when they run away, they're going to run into the worst people. Like we talk about like, oh, you make criminals worse by sending them to jail so they get to hang out with other criminals or they have to hang out with other criminals. Now do that for, for this. Uh, not only do these uh, you know, kids like teach each other how to run away, you know, which is you know, natural for them, but there's all those people outside who are teaching them like, hey, here's a way you can make you know, 500 bucks in a night for me, uh, that type of thing. Um, similarly, a lot of the kids will go in there and they'll be like, listen, like, you just have to tell the people that the foster parent uh, sexually abused you and then you can go home. So there's lots of like, you know, home remedies that go around in, in the children's center and it covers up for the times which do happen where there actually is abuse in like a foster home. But the, the whole defense strategy, which makes sense for the individual, but the moment you take a child away from their family, the family starts utilizing them, the child starts utilizing them, they're just natural strategies, get away, get away, get back to my family, get away from this, get back to my family. And it often digs them deeper and deeper and deeper holes. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's horrible. It, it, no matter how well-intentioned a government program is, and saving children from evil adults is the most well-intentioned thing you could put words to. No matter how well-intentioned it is, it will more often than not make things worse. There will be other examples against it, but it will more often than not make things worse. And I believe that before I did this job uh, and then coming to this job just solidified my beliefs. 
And when I'm doing this, and all the people I work with are very, very far left progressive people who I respect the hell out of, and they say the same thing, like, okay, well, maybe I'm not just a crazy libertarian. Maybe the moment ACS gets involved, they do make it worse. Now, in my practice, they, they talk about ACS making stuff worse. In criminal practice, they talk about the DA making stuff worse. In the immigration practice, they talk about ICE making stuff worse. And all I'm saying is, I'm not saying I'm smarter than them, but just like, combine it all together. Like, if, it's not like government would work if we just tried harder or meant better. It's just, there's no incentives. Mm. I like, I really like the way that you like that. I'm definitely going to make a like quote graphic out of that. Government wouldn't work better if we tried harder, had better intentions. Um, uh, but yeah, like the, as far as the sending people to jail makes them worse and like sending people to these kinds of facilities, like just, uh, you know, puts them in that kind of an environment. It's a hundred percent accurate. I yeah. learned how to commit more crimes in the 11 days that I spent uh, between the tombs in Manhattan and Rikers Island. than I did the rest of my life combined up until that point. I learned how to roll joints better. I learned how to finally Ooh. actually roll blunts, like, like actually well. Um, I learned how to uh, scam checks i learned how to scam like how to get like fake uh department store credit cards uh like yeah, so you, many people taught me, me how to get into that it didn't help your sobriety to go to jail where there's no drug collapse no it didn't actually well because you're saying you're wrong once but mm -hmm. This is one thing that people often don't get. I mean, with weed, it's one thing. But when it comes to a powdery substance, it's going to get in. Like, it's going to get in. And so if your purpose of putting this person in a cage like an animal is because they used a powdery substance in some way, you're putting them in a place where they're going to get plenty of powdery substance. But in order to get that powdery substance, they're going to have to do something that someone else isn't willing to do. And that's probably a bad thing. Either that person is going to suffer or they're going to harm someone else. And you put people in desperate situations where they're still addicted, they still have access, but the only way they can get what they want is to do something really horrible to another person. And you teach people not just to be criminals, but to be violent criminals. Mm -hmm. It's the worst possible outcome. Yeah. I actually smoked a joint in the in the the like courthouse. Like the what is it, like 10 uh court street or like the, the main fucking building. Like the floor underneath the courtroom, we were sitting in our holding cell smoking weed. <laughs> like under Manhattan Courthouse? Yes. I, I used to do some internship work there. That's, uh, I've definitely smelled more weed there than in my apartment. And I don't think there's been a day where there wasn't any weed in my apartment. So it, I, I believe that story. Yeah. It was, it was the funniest thing for me. Because like I was, fuck, I was what, 20, 19 or 20? Um, and so I was, you know, I was, I thought, I didn't know that that was going to be a thing. You know, like I hear that, that obviously drugs make it into prison, but not like the holding cell before court. Not in the welcome area. They got yeah. a connection, you pay them something up. I mean, did they just gift it to you? 
The, yeah, I mean, they, well, they, they like still had it on them. Like, apparently, he had like a joint in his sock or whatever when he got arrested. Cops didn't find it. So, yeah, they smoked up like pretty much everybody that was in the holding cell with us. We were just passing it around. There's probably like a solid like nine or 10 of us in there. We just all got stoned before our sentence. <laughs> I do not have a story that good. Uh, the closest I have is that when I went to Bonnaroo one year, uh, I had a little bit of weed to bring with us, and I gave it to a friend. I was like, hide this somewhere, just in case we get pulled over. And uh, we got pulled over entering. Like, they pull, like, every 50th car over to just do a full search. And, like, you sign that as part of the contract to go to this, you know, festival. Um, so we're like, oh, crap, like, they're going to tear our car apart. The Tennessee State Troopers take everything out. Like, it's not our first rodeo. We know you have drugs. And I was like, I know we have even this is Tennessee, we're gonna get totally fucked. Like, but I'm not gonna say anything. You never say anything to police, never talk to police. And so I was like, I just trust my friend hit it. We got out and they searched it. We had brought a Don't Tread on Me flag because it was the year that Metallica played and we wanted them to play Don't Tread on Me because they never play it. Uh, so we were gonna wave that. The guy's like, What is this green snake? Is that marijuana? I'm like, Are you? I thought you were from Tennessee. Like, what are you talking? Like, you don't know the Gadsden flag? Like, you know, like I thought you would know that. Um, but they searched everywhere. And then they're like, okay, didn't find anything, go ahead. And we're pulling away from the police inspection. And I turn to my friend, I'm like, where did you hide that like little nug of wheat? And he opened up, it was a box of powdered donuts. And he had taken his finger and drilled into the donut and then like rolled it up and put it inside the donut curve and then put that donut in the bottom of the whole set of nine donuts. And it was so genius. I even saw the cop be like, oh, donuts, you're trying to trick us with something? And he's like, no one's gonna take each donut. It was really I, I wish I had thought of it, but it, it just it made me so proud. Like I have good taste in friends because he, he thought of that. That is uh that is a fucking genius idea. Also, like the irony of the donuts is just marvelous. I don't know if he meant it that. I think he was just like, oh, but like it just came together in a poetic way. And if he did mean it, you know, more power to him. I miss him. I haven't seen him for a few years. But uh that that, that was a brilliant move. That's great. I uh, I just finally yesterday found the actual like uh, card from the TSA that says that they searched my bag, um, because I could tell that they had because That's my laptop. Say again. That's how you ended up in uh, Rikers was. TSA oh no 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 no! This oh. is uh, this is like from from this trip down to Texas. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I. Cause my, they moved my laptop. It was like, wasn't in the same pocket as it was when I checked the bag. So like, I knew they had searched it, but I didn't see the little card. Um, but apparently they searched the backpack that had all the paraphernalia in it, but not the suitcase that had all the actual cannabis in it. Mm. <laughs> so I, I got here with like two joints and a still about a dime left uh, in the baggie all like, stuffed into my socks or whatever so i haven't flown with like actual bud in a while so i was kind of i've never done it because i i'm you know i i think it's still against federal law and i'm a i'm a limp i don't want to go to prison like I, I have a career and everything so i'm not even gonna risk that but i people tell me they do it all the time like it's scary but like most people you at most places you end up you can just find it like when i was in austin uh, I was in Austin for like two weeks, and then I lived in rural Texas for a couple months doing an internship. And within like two days, I was just hanging out with random people and you know, had a, a regular easy supply of it. Like it would be very, very easy if you just like, talk to people. Um, it's not a big deal. Uh, the problem is like there's still you know, 
even though weed is legal in many places, and in Austin, for example, weed is decriminalized, in Texas it's not, um, but even in places where it's decriminalized, where it's legal, it will still give you collateral consequences in so many ways. And let's say, again, not to make it all about me, uh, say you have a family court case and you have to do drug testing because you used to be an addict of some hard drug and now marijuana pops up on your test. Well, that's not illegal, but why are you using drugs again? Are you using them in front of the children? You know, alcohol could come up on the test and they could, if they think that you're using it in front of the children, that can still be uh, held against you, except that marijuana comes up for months, whereas alcohol comes up just the next day. So it's much less likely to get you know, caught up in it. You can go out for like, you know, girls night out with your sister, leave the kids home with a babysitter, smoke a joint with her, come home sober, go to bed, all good. And now three weeks later, you test positive for marijuana and they're like, hmm, maybe we shouldn't send your children home next week like we had planned. Stuff like that, even though it's legal here. Uh, you know, similarly, like if I take it from here to another state, you can get in trouble. Uh, you know, try being in Oregon and taking your magic mushrooms out of the state. Unless you're Adam Kokesh, you're going to get in a lot of trouble for that. Uh, and I, I would, you know, I, I think it was a little silly for us to keep calling marijuana medicine because smoking it is obviously not good for you. Uh, but psych, psychedelics are medicine. Like, like mm-hmm. I, I was paid by the government to take psychedelics and to have my brain scanned. I did this while I was bartending and studying for the LSAT at Columbia University. They will pay you to go into the labs, either to smoke a bunch of weed, get your brain scanned, to take MDMA uh, in a blind study and get your brain scanned, all these different drugs. They will pay you thousands of dollars to do it, get your brain scanned. Why? You read the published studies later, it's to help treat veterans with PTSD, but they need to do it on people who don't have PTSD to like, see how it works and what the actual mechanism of it is. This was back in 2012, or no, 2013 I was doing that. Hmm. Uh, I did a whole bunch of these different studies where they would, they would do it. And like, I can go back and read them. And then now when you see like different states that are, you know, starting to legalize these substances and they're submitting, you know, studies, those studies reference back to this original study. So I've actually seen myself referenced in like legislative, you know, advocacy articles uh, because I was a test subject in one of these big, big, you know, national studies of the effect of MDMA on some specific part of the brain, whatever it was. Um, Based. It's un- undoubted that both psilocybin and MDMA uh, can be used therapeutically. It is undoubted. So this whole Schedule 1, uh, you know, no medical use. Obviously, we've, we've gone way past that on uh, cannabis, even though it's still on there. Uh, but, like, it, it's quite, quite odd. We are currently treating with federal dollars veterans with PTSD with psychedelics, and it is still Schedule 1, no medicinal use. The, the government's lying to itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and I am I'm excited to see the movement on that one, especially like specifically psilocybin. Uh, there's like uh, I mean, decriminalized California is currently running a statewide initiative uh, to decriminalize psilocybin in the state of California. Um, Oregon did it statewide last year in 2020. Uh, Denver and Oakland have both done it municipally. Mm-hmm. Uh, DC did it. Um, like there's there's some really solid movement on this the psilocybin front and i'm with you like this i personally like i know that you know psychedelics aren't for everyone i'm gonna make that caveat before i say anything else because people like to give me shit for like trying oh, to force drugs caveat too because i used to do psychedelics fairly regularly because i was very good about set 
upsetting, nothing upsetting in your brain when you're doing it. I now do this job, and I know there's a chance that if I take a bunch of mushrooms, I might start thinking about one of my cases that will be really disturbing. So I, I don't really do them anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I've done them once when I started doing this job. That didn't happen, but like it's a concern. If, if you are in a state where like you're doing stressful or upsetting stuff, probably not the best time. Like you don't want to be the vet, the, the guy who's at war in Iraq doing psychedelics. You want to be the guy who's come home and is trying to get over something in a therapeutic setting and where, where everything's calm. Uh, so no, they, they are not a recreational drug. And anyone who treats them like that or anyone who gives them to other people without their knowledge should be exiled. Like I, I, I don't yeah. believe in harsh punishments, but that that's the ultimate sin. Um, and you know who does that? The U.S. government, Operation Midnight Climax, where they re recruited uh, sex workers to recruit men in San Francisco to come to brothels. They would lock the men in a room, they would dose them with LSD in a glass of water, and they would watch them over the course of the night as they suffered, as they had no idea what was going on. They just came to, you know, have a quick whatever, and all of a sudden, Time has stopped or has accelerated, whatever it is. You've lost your ego. You know, you are dead. <laughs> As a singularity, or you are a singularity, or you were, you're not. Whatever it is, you have no idea what's going on. This is in the 60s, and the CIA is watching you through a, a one-way mirror, uh, and you're tripping balls. And that's torture. Like, that's absolute torture. There are people who do LSD to themselves, and they get tortured by it. But <laughs> someone in a room and giving it to them, when people didn't even know LSD was a thing, and just watching them and, you know, on, on, you know, they're already nervous and not in a good set and setting. And then, yeah, that sounds that right. People who did that should be in prison. Like people who do LSD should not be in prison. People who get paid by the government to lock people in rooms and give them LSD should be in prison. It's not like a one-time thing. We did this for decades. Mm -hmm. on, we're probably doing it now. Oh, yeah. I, I'm doing half the suppliers on the dark web. Uh, who are selling LSD to people. And I have friends who buy it on there. And I tell them, don't, unless you have a testing strip, don't buy any drugs on there. I bet half of them are selling research chemicals for the CIA to see whose mind they can control. Like that, that's my conspiracy theory for the day. Uh, don't go on the dark web and buy strange chemicals. You don't know it's LSD. You don't know it's psilocybin. Don't do that. Just come to it naturally. Let it rain upon you. And if you don't, then you shouldn't be doing it. True that. Let the universe give you your psychedelics. Like, don't you don't have to seek them out. Um, sure. Interesting to bring up uh, to bring up research chemicals and like uh, what what the government does with with various drugs. It's interesting to see THCO become a uh, a substance that is sold and consumed like like regularly at the moment because it's uh, it fits the the loophole. BS similar to like Delta 8 THC. Mm -hmm. um, but DHCO is actually a, a research chemical. It's a, you know, something that the, that say pretty much the same group of people who were doing what you were just talking about of, you know, trying to figure out how to fuck with people's minds and how to torture people. Um, THCO was like them trying to isolate the most um, psychedelic form parts of the, of cannabis and trying to like make it i guess i guess they were trying to find something a little bit less than acid but a little bit more than weed you know something kind of kind of somewhere in that in that range um and they were able to isolate thco and that was like a thing back in like the, the i think like late 
or early 70s, mid 70s was when they kind of discovered it. And then it kind of became not really a thing. It just kind of, you know, it didn't, it wasn't strong enough for them to actually use it to torture people. So they kind of gave up on it. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, you know, I've purchased it's it. Coming like, back. I've never, I've never heard of it, man. Uh, well, you know, I, I'm a simple man with simple taste at this point. I, I, I like a beer and I like, you know, flour. That's about it. Um, yeah. But there, there's some, like, you can, I won't say in my neighborhood, but in some neighborhoods, you can go to a smoke shop and you can buy THC marijuana. You can buy real marijuana. Mm-hmm. Just give them money, cash, and they'll give it to you. That does multiple places that I've been in the city that are walking distance of either where I live previously or where I live now, where that's happening right now. Like it, it, it is happening now and no, and no one's getting any taxes on it. But part, part of me wonders like what percentage of that is actual cannabis? What percentage of it is hemp that got sprayed with something? You can buy hemp, you know, cheap readily and just spray it with something. And now you got magic hemp that's going to get you high, but it's not going to get you THC high. And that's why I always bring a beer to all my podcasts because I know exactly what the ingredients in this beer is. I, I, I know every single one of them. I mean, it's a German beer, so it's pretty simple. Um, I know exactly what the alcohol content is. It's not going to be off by even a, a tenth of a percent because it's science and they're a repeatable company. And if they mess it up and they get tested and all of a sudden it's above that or if they get someone drunk faster than they were supposed to, they're going to get a lawsuit. They're going to go out of business. They're going to hurt for it. They'll be held accountable. People who are selling on the on the black market, we take the accountability system, which is the court system, and we say that doesn't apply here anymore. It doesn't apply between the seller and the buyer. It only applies to the, the buyer or the seller separately because they're committing crimes. We get rid of the whole contract system, the whole you know, uh, you know business sense system. If you buy heroin and it has fentanyl in it, you have no idea where it came from. There's no way to find out. If I buy this and the fentanyl in it, I know exactly who to go talk to. It is much, much, much easier. And that's why I have no fear of this. But if you're, you know, I go buy from the bodega downtown I, or you know, next door, wherever it is, you know, I now know that there are cases of people putting fentanyl on weed. And unfortunately, I know firsthand from people getting hurt. Um, but how do I know that's not that? How do I know? Until it's fully legal in the way that Larry Sharp talks about fully legal, regulate it like onions, just sell it, put a sticker on it where it's from. This onion from, you know, Idaho, this onion from here, this onion from this farm, all the onions you buy had those little stickers on, put that on the weed, done. Okay, and if you lie about it, you're fucked. Like if you put your spinach out and it's got salmonella on it, your farm's going out of business unless you have really, really good insurance. Okay, make that like weed. Like make, make all the drugs like that. It's the only way we're going to get rid of this risk. If even before fentanyl was a thing and it was killing everyone, it was still the right thing to do. But now it is a health emergency because people are really dying. There was just today an arrest of one guy who in one night delivered cocaine to three different people. And the next day was calling them over and over and over again to be like, hey, like that's really strong stuff. Watch out. Because he realized there was fentanyl in it. And they all died. All three people died here in New York. Just happened yesterday. Or the arrest just happened yesterday. And I can tell you from very personal experience that this is happening all the time. And again, it does not happen. This is the oldest brewery, I think, in the world, Vine Stefaner. Um, but definitely doesn't happen with them. It's not going to happen with any American brewery. It's not going to happen at any brewery anywhere because you can track it back to them. 
The moment it becomes black market and there's no enforcement mechanism, there's no incentive to keep your word and to sell what you're telling people you're selling them. There's an incentive to minimize cost and to increase profit. Yep. There's no, there's no, there's no uh, you know, uh, customer feedback. There's no customer evaluation. There's no Yelp, you know, right. for your for your dealer. Now the moment that happened with marijuana, like now I can tell you what strains I like. Before I couldn't. Like, isn't it great? Like now that it's legal, you can be like, oh, that producer who makes a good blue dream, I love that blue dream. That producer who makes a good, you know, AK-47, the drug, not the gun people, come on. But that guy who makes a good AK-47. I like them both. Yeah, they're great. (laughs) We're we're trying to be PG here. Uh, We're talking about the only things that are legal in New York, and that would be uh, AK-47, the weed, not AK-47, the gun. Come on. Running in New York. Um, what do you think about the uh, the public consumption laws? New York is the first state to really be as as open as we are with the with just you know fucking walk down the street, smoke a joint. It's cool. So it's it's not a law. It's an enforcement policy, and it doesn't help anything. If it was a public consumption law, I could go consume this in public. I can't. This is illegal to consume in public. Mm-hmm. I, I will get a ticket if I consume this in public. If I shoot up, I won't. It's kind of fucked in that way. Something I love to bring up is that if you go to China, you go to Shanghai, you know, where they're tracking you on cameras everywhere, and if you cross the street that you know with against the light, your your face will be up on a big screen. It will say your name and say that you're a jaywalker and that you're losing social credit points. I've seen this happen. Beautiful city, uh, but you can buy a beer from a vending machine on the street with your face and there's a bottle opener built into it, and you can open it and drink it right there. It's not Chinese beer. It's La Chouf. You know, it's like high-end, you know, Belgian beer, high-end American beer. Uh, you know, great, great stuff. Cheaper than here. You can drink it in the street. Okay, you know, they got other stuff going on over there. But, like, they can drink out in the street. Why can't I in the, in America, the home of the free and the brave? Like, that, that's a little bit silly to me. And then to say that this drug is illegal to possess, but we're not going to arrest you for it, it it's not just making a, a, a black market. It's a black and a gray market that doesn't help us neither of these markets are free we need a free market in this or it's not going to work out if there is threat of your life being destroyed maybe not threat of you being put in a cage and arrested but your threat of your life being destroyed by the government for these decisions it's still going to destroy your life and it's still going to mean that anyone who makes this mistake who gives into this temptation is going to be much much harder to get out of this this is something i talked to a uh uh, drew about from the clean libertarian podcast and about how the moment you become desperate you're more susceptible to addiction the moment you become addicted you become desperate and if those two things are happening at the same time you're in a really really deep hole and it's really hard to get out of and the moment government gets involved you're desperate you know, the moment i become your attorney you're in a bad situation not because i'm your attorney but because you're in a place where i had to be your attorney um, right. it, it's it, it, it's a compounding thing. And the more you add on to it, like, oh, you know, people used to think like, oh, drug courts. Drug courts will help people because they're not sentencing them to, to jail and giving them long sentences. Like, okay, it's not as bad, but they're still in court. They're still being watched by the government. They're, they're, every move is still being you know, scrutinized. And everyone breaks the law. Everyone breaks it every day. But if you're on probation or you're in drug court you know, supervision or your family court supervision, someone's going to see it and report it. Shit that I do, no one's seeing and reporting. 
Mm-hmm. Probably the biggest risk that I put myself in every day is coming on podcasts like this and saying that I smoke weed and like that's in my house or that like mushrooms are good for you and they're not in my house, but like there's a chance they could be in the future. Like that's probably more dangerous for me. That, like that's like a normal day for my client because they exist in this world where they're constantly being watched. More people, no offense, more people are probably watching my clients on any given basis and are watching this right now. <laughs> <laughs> and more of them are definitely going to tattle on my clients than are going to tattle on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if they do, like, I, I have resources, whereas the, the people who are most targeted are the people with the fewest resources. And there's a reason for that, because it's hard to target people with resources. It's hard to put Harvey Weinstein in jail. He's got 25 lawyers. This person has a lawyer with 75 clients. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, instead of a uh, client with 75 lawyers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that, is, that is my current case count. So. Jesus. That's insane. Um, it's been worse. It's going to get better. Where well, you just hired a bunch of people. I'm very excited. Nice. COVID made it difficult for numbers and retention. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're all still working from home. And if, if you have a family, like, you know, I've got cats and a wife but you have three kids at home and they're all homeschooled every other week depending on you know what the covid outbreaks like but you also have to have a room to yourself to do court appearances to call clients it, it, they made it very difficult for working families like for working parents even on my side of the litigation um to keep doing that because they're just messing around with their you know, their entire lives and making it more difficult uh and for some people i totally get it like it's it's not worth the the hassle like it's mm-hmm. not worth having to, to put up with this all the time you know, maybe quit for now take a few years off and if stuff normalizes you come back but you know, if not you just leave, live a little bit more frugally yeah man that's at 75 cases though that's i i couldn't wrap my head around like you know i've done i've done plenty of like file based jobs you know whether it's like sales or whatever where you're like working on a certain number it's never been anything close to 75 not even in sales with like close to like three four day turnarounds in this sales mm-hmm. cycle i wasn't i wasn't really actively working like ever like that many things at the same time that you know, I'll, I'll say this like maybe 30 of those cases are after trial so we're kind of like in the the post like the uh, probation phase or the, the mm-hmm. parole phase we're kind of monitoring, but if family court, if anything goes wrong again, you come right back and just gets extended. Um, so sometimes we'll just have like minor stuff going on. And so a case will just drag on forever, but it's not much work. Sometimes you'll have a case that is just, you know, explodes, burns out in a week. Like we have a big hearing, an emergency hearing, win it, and we make our case and prove that it never happened. And then they withdraw the case. And it's just a week straight of work and then nothing else. And it's over. Sometimes it's just a year and a half of just having a conference every month. Um, but with 75 clients, you get to do a little bit of a little bit of everything. That makes sense. Um, you mentioned that like uh, everyone, uh, everyone's a criminal, right? And like that, you know, everyone's committing crimes every day. I I often tell people that I think that I think that New York City is one of the most libertarian parts of the country. Um, and I and I really like truly mean that. I think that it's more libertarian than New Hampshire. I think that it's more libertarian than Wyoming or Kansas or Texas or most of the country. Tell, um, tell me, I, I I need to come back. Well, like the the, the pe- 
you're upsetting me now. <laughs> or at, at least the people, obviously not like the, the government structure, but the people of New York are more libertarian. And part of that is because New Yorkers are drastically desensitized to the idea of lawbreaking. Like the idea of like, um, like nonviolent action or, you know, just like, uh, non-compliance with various laws you know there there are some parts of the country where just the very idea of like active non-compliance is terrifying like because they've never yeah. really like broken a law they've never done anything wrong ever like my mom has like she doesn't even really speed let alone like anything else where i don't know anyone from new york uh i mean maybe maybe you'll be the first exception as i say this you can tell me if i'm right or wrong i don't know anyone from new york and and whether they're CEOs in finance or like homeless people that hasn't jumped the turnstiles at least once to get on the subway. Oh yeah. And I hurt myself horribly. I got my leg caught in it. I had a bruise. It looked like I'd been shot. Like it, it was awful. Was oh, it, was, it was coming from babies. All right. And it was like the last train for, like for 40 minutes. And yeah, I, I, I had a card, but I didn't have time. I just went for it and I got the train and everyone was laughing at me. And I hurt a lot, so I, I think I paid my due. Um, there you go. Yeah, uh, but yeah, like but everyone's. Like, like, there's no way that your your mom, however sweet she is, is not a criminal. Your mom's a criminal. She has committed tax fraud. Has she ever bought something in cash and not reported it? I mean, like, come on, like everyone's a criminal. Oh yeah, I completely agree with you. I just think that in uh, in New York we kn we understand it more. Like we're we're more we come like face to face with the fact that like. We jump the turnstiles. We jaywalk. Uh, you know, there's there's like there's crimes that we watch people get arrested for, like in our day, like that we've committed in the last 24 hours. Like you watch but somebody get arrested at a turnstile, like at the next stop after you yeah, just jump to get on it. I'm going to argue it's the exact opposite, that we're the least libertarian because of exactly that, which is that it's not just that we see people breaking the law every day, but that we see state violence every day and we don't do anything about it. I mean, we, we, you have seen the guy getting beaten up on the subway platform. I, I assume you have. I have. I mean, you've seen the bad arrest. You've seen the police just for no reason at all doing 20 cop cars in a row with their, their lights on in a Hispanic neighborhood. And then they turn them off right when they get to uh, 86th Street and they cross on the Upper East Side and they, they turn off the lights and they're no longer doing a show of force. This is where all the rich white people live. But when you were up in the 90s, you had all the sirens on, you're doing Operation Hercules and you're showing off. Mm -hmm. uh, we're used to seeing the police every, everywhere and anywhere. I remember the first time I, I went to work in New York City after I moved here, coming up the escalator on like 52nd and Lexington and like wanting to look up at the big skyscrapers that are right there. But instead, there were four guys with big machine guns, you know, cops. And I was like, well, this is. I'm, I'm coming to work. I'm going to work at like a, a fine. This didn't last long, but I was a cold caller for a uh, a stockbroker right after college. It was awful. Uh, but I came out of them guys with guns. I was like, well, it's 2011. Like 9/11 was 10 years ago. We still have this going on everywhere, and we see that, and we just kind of become used to it. Like if you saw a regular person in New York with a gun, you would be shocked. You would freak out. Not maybe not you, but like the average person would freak the fuck out if they saw someone with a gun in New York City. They would call the police because they're probably committing a crime. And they probably are. But when you see a cop, you don't do anything. You don't freak out. We see the cops pulling their guns. When you see the cops speeding down the road to go stop someone for whatever reason, you don't freak out. 
we, we interact with police so much, I would say we are the least libertarian and we pay the least amount of attention. We got to the point where people were being choked to death for selling individual cigarettes and he wasn't even selling an individual cigarette. And that guy's still a cop. But we, we went that far. I, I strongly disagree. You make good points. Um, I'll, I'll say that I'll say two things. One that I, I like, I, I agree. We, we interact with cops more than anybody and maybe we don't like do anything about it, but I think that that's given a lot of people in New York, uh, a, a more like heartfelt and deeper understanding of the problems with government than most people from like white suburbia that have, have never seen a cop like beat up an innocent person. Um, but also, I think that the other thing about New York City culture that makes it more libertarian also kind of speaks to what you were just talking about, which is I've never interacted a culture that like embodied the um, do no harm and give no fucks kind of thing of like, like nowhere else in the country can you just have a full on argument with yourself on public transportation and, ha and bother no one else on that public transportation. You know what I mean? Like, we're very, so that, very good fair, at living let's, let's that say you're, in, you're in small town. Let's say you're where you are. You're outside of, are you in Dallas or Austin? And you're in some small town outside of there. And someone's walking mm -hmm. down the street. You're a small town. They're screaming at yourself or at themselves. Someone's going to call and get them help. Now, hopefully they don't call the police. But hopefully they call a family member or you know, a, someone, you know, they get them help. But someone's going to know that person and to care for that person. Here... It's become so regular that we can just joke about it. Like it can be every stand-up comedian that you will ever see at an open mic is going to make some joke with someone yelling about themselves on the train. And it's because we've we've mm -hmm. incentivized people who are suffering like that to come here and just tread water. We're not encouraging them to come here and get any better. We're not helping them to get any better in anywhere. We're almost we're actively making them worse. But we've given them an incentive like you'll you'll be you'll be able to live and eat and sleep here and continue your addiction and continue your your spiral into a mental health crisis and it's so commonplace that we're not even going to do anything about it no one's even going to notice you you i will get off the train and i will forget which person i saw talking to themselves but you know by the time i get to my office that day it is so common. It's not me ripping on you for like being like, oh, is it? But like, this right, is how right. we all live. Like, we're 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 so conditioned to it. There's no world where that would happen without government. There's no world where you would get on a train and someone would be, you know, peeing in their pants or doing something, you know, you know, horrible to themselves, you know, hurting themselves some way. That wouldn't happen in in a, in a world without government because either someone would step up or they wouldn't have gotten on the train in the first place. Now, one way that you can do it, you could do it with a ton of government, like what I saw in China, where the trains were very, very clean. Uh, the door is closed the moment the train is supposed to leave. You're not getting on if you put your hand in. Like, the train is leaving. You're going to lose your arm. Um, and I noticed, I remember one day, I was like, I haven't seen anyone on the train asking for money or anything. And my wife, my, wife, my now wife, was like, uh, oh, yeah, they like, they move them out of the city. Like they, they put them somewhere else. And then like two or three days later, we were getting on the train and there was one man with no arms and no legs, just stubs going around like this. And she's like, oh yeah, we, we used to have those here all the time in Shanghai because gangs would kidnap them and they would cut off their arms and legs like orphans and they would have them go beg for them because they were like really, really high like revenue getters because they have no arms and legs. Like, just like Plum Dog Millionaire where they make them blind. Um, 
but eventually they all got, you know, if not a nice look for a cosmopolitan city. Uh, so almost all of them, except for this one poor guy that I saw, were all shipped out. Now that's one way to cover it up. Those people still exist somewhere. They're not any better. So again, it's government covering up a problem and actually fixing it. How do you fix it? You, no one is going to fix that problem unless they care. Unless they care. And no, no one person is going to care for all of the people. No one institution is going to care for all of the people. We need to allow a environment where people can care for other people. Right now, we make it very, very difficult for people to care for other people. We make it so that you have to work full time, all the time to pay your taxes and to pay your rent. If you have a family member who's suffering, you know, I, I'd love to be able to help them. But, you know, I'm, I'm just barely able to make ends meet. Now that person's on the subway. And you and I are talking about that. And and that's what happens. Like it, it's just that, that little difference between living a comfortable, productive lifestyle and you know being beaten down because of inflation and, and, and wage pressures, that you are not and your family is not in a position to help that member of your family or your community or your extended friend circle who's having that emergency. We've made it much, much harder to do that. Like think about why, like elderly parents aren't living with their children now they're living in nursing homes or they're just suffering and dying it's not because children hate their parents because it's way more expensive to do that as part of their as part of their salary children have always right. their parents. They yeah <laughs> yeah that's not a new yeah. thing it's not a non-existent thing but it's not a new thing percentage always point you and a large percentage of that is deserved so, you know some parents are bad okay I'll, I'll even admit that none of my clients but some um <laughs> yeah uh but like look like it it is. It would not be possible for me to support my dad right now if, if he got, you know, a, a debilitating disease or Alzheimer's. And I'm a lawyer, and my wife is a lawyer. That that was never the case at any point. But because working class people, even upper working class people like myself, I mean, I have to consider myself that. Um, we we can't afford that. You know, I I can't afford to buy a house. I'm probably never going to buy a house. At least as long as I live in New York City, I'd have to move very far out of here. Uh, you know, my wife doesn't drive. It's just a very unlikely thing to ever happen. And that was not true when, when my parents were my age or when their parents were their age. It was much, much easier. I did the calculation once, and this isn't a perfect measurement. But in 1971, if you had a median salary, you could take your salary and you could buy 220 ounces of gold with it. Today, you can buy about 24 ounces of gold with it. So we're just going on a gold standard, which we're not on. I'll admit that. But if we are, the average income has dropped, or the median income has dropped by 90%. I don't think it's exactly that, but I think it's up there around 75%. And that's why everyone has to take a loan to go to college. Everyone has to take a huge loan to get a mortgage. You know, everyone is completely wiped out by their mortgages. Home ownership is down. Depression is up. Suicide is up. All these things are connected. And a large amount of it is connected back to my favorite thing to rant about, the Federal Reserve. But we're never going to get people to end the Federal Reserve unless we connect it to those issues. Until libertarians say you are suffering and your generation is suffering, your community is suffering, and it's being enabled by these horrible systems that are abstract, like these big abstract systems that, you're, that are designed for you not to understand them. Until we can make those connections, we're not going to get anywhere. And so I don't, I don't know if I made that connection by rambling about it for the past 20 minutes, but at some point we have to figure out a way to do it or we're, we're not going to solve these problems. Yeah, no, I I a hundred percent agree, and it's it's really insane how quickly you can wake up a leftist to the Federal Reserve. Like, like once you do that, once you make that connection, like, boom! Like it's just because because it does fit 
so many of the, it's the cause to so many of the problems that mm-hmm. that the left and cares all about. are bad and yeah. progressives are just the most outwardly loud and and most emotional people who want good things libertarians tend to people be the people who want good things who are not highly emotional they don't have a high emotion quotient the they're the most autistic people that like want good things. i didn't want to say it you said it for me uh, <laughs> <laughs> i make that joke on this show almost every episode we've all been accused uh, i've never been diagnosed but we've all been accused um Whereas the, progressive, the progressives are not the autistic. They're, they're the passionate ones. They're, they're the artists. They're the ones who you know do uh, do do drama. Like these are all the, you know, the stereotypes, obviously, but they're true like to an extent, and they mean just as well as us. to thinking about it a different way, and one of us is like we all want the same thing, but one of us is right about how to get there. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm at least willing to talk to these people and, and to listen to them. One of my, my major uh, campaign like uh, uh, volunteers right now is this guy, Edwin de Jesus, who ran as a Green Party candidate here in Astoria for city council last year. He did better than all the libertarians combined. And he didn't do it by getting just Green Party people to vote for him because he was running against a public defender, progressive liberal, uh, who was honestly a great candidate for the Democrats to run here. And she did great, but he did better than everyone else because he reached out to both sides. He said, I'm pro-environment, I'm anti-corporate, but I'm also anti-mandate because I'm anti-corporate. Like, he was one of those people who could put together that Pfizer is the one doing the mandates. Like, he, he, he and he had been protesting Pfizer you know, 10 years ago. So like he's known that these are not the people that we want on our side or running our policy. And he's stayed consistent. And so a lot of the votes that he got, including mine, came from libertarian-leaning people, came from Republican-leaning people who just didn't want to vote for the duopoly and didn't want to vote for the mandates. And that's why he's supporting me now. Do we agree on Medicare for all? No. You and I went over that. It might be better than the current. Like when I said I tell people that, he's who I'm talking about. Like he's one of the people that I'm talking about. And he's like, look, I, I accept that you're coming from a logically, logically consistent and morally well-meaning place. I, Edwin, significantly disagree with you on Medicare for all. But I know that you mean well, and you mean well on these other issues, so I can trust you. That's all that I need is to be able to trust you, uh, even when we disagree on these other issues. And that's why I voted for him. That's why I vote for a lot of Green Party candidates, and I vote for a lot of Libertarian candidates. Um, that's all it takes, because if you mean well, you can be persuaded to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. If you, if you, and if you mean well and you have a system to not be corrupted, those are the two things. So mm-hmm. for him, it was the ter- self-imposed term limits and not taking you know, corporate money. For me, it's, I don't even know how not to take corporate money. I don't know if corporations are giving me money. No one's giving me money, so I have no idea. Um, but I, I won't take corporate money, um, and I'm term limiting myself. So hopefully that's enough to convince people. Like I'm not here just to grift off you. I'm not here just to make a big name for myself. Um, I want to go back to public defense. I would like it if after my campaign I can delete my website so my clients don't have to find it because those are weird conversations to have every now and then. Um, but, yeah, I... It, we, we need a way for people to have, like the number one thing has to be is, are you grifting or not? And if you can say not, I'll probably vote for you even if I disagree with everything you, you say. Because yeah. I know that a well-intentioned and rational argument can change your opinion, whether it's for me or someone else. If you mean well and are earnest and aren't just like a, a sociopath, that, that's a good bottom line. We can work from there. And if you're not a Republican or Democrat, if you are, then there's no work. Right. 
I'm a I uh, I'm a fan of Edwin. I followed his campaign a little bit. Um, I won't go down the uh, the whole ass rabbit hole of his opponent and everything and and why I cared about his campaign because we're coming up on two hours here. But um, it was, uh, we did a two hour one on that one. That that was interesting. You're, you're right. I have asked her to come on my show at least four separate occasions at this point. I would love incredible candidate. Great candidate for the progressive agenda. Like I believe her. I'm sure better candidate for DA. Yes. Liked her a and, lot and, more in 2020 than 2020 or and, 2019. And so for everyone watching, she ran for Queens DA. She won. They did a recount, and somehow the corporate Dem won over her by like a tiny margin. Um, 19 votes. Nine. Oh, 19 votes. Jesus Christ! I didn't even know that. And guess what? I didn't vote for her because I couldn't because I'm not a Democrat. It was a primary, and the primary is right. what determine the entire outcome. Now, is that an argument for, hey, John, you should register as a Democrat and vote in the primaries? No, it's an argument in the other direction. If the Democrats would reach out to us and make it worth it for libertarians to register as Democrats and vote in their primaries and believe in their candidates, then maybe, yes, I would reward them by having their uh, you know, ideologically pure candidates win. But not until then. I don't see that ever happening. Her name is Tiffany Kaban. I, I actually really like her because I, I know she does what I do and I respect the hell out of it. And she did it for a long time. Not just like do it for a few years like me uh, and then run for office. But, you know, she did it for a long time. She worked her ass off uh, and she almost won that campaign. But that's why it's so impressive that Edwin, uh, Edwin DeJesus, did better than all the libertarian candidates because he was running in like a slam dunk one for her, for, for Tiffany Caban, because she was clearly going to win. She's a great candidate. The Republican candidate was very nice, very, you know, like there, there was no like negative campaigning between them like they got I, I saw them hugging on election night i was standing right there next to the, the polling place um and yet he got like seven percent or maybe with six percent all the libertarian candidates got you know one of them or one or two got two percent and all the rest got below like one and a half our mayoral candidate who's a great lady i love her stacy pressman she got like half of a percent mm-hmm. and and edwin blew them all out of the water yeah. and yeah. The, the reason is that he wasn't just applying to the left fringe. He was applying to the left fringe. He was applying somewhat to the right fringe. And he was applying to the libertarian fringe. He was mm-hmm. he was going for the earnest man's vote, the earnest man and woman's vote. And he got mine. I will also, I will also point out point- that he's the uh like he's the only one in this conversation that was actually running. Like n- none of the libertarians this past year actually ran a campaign uh so, was I, I wasn't serious. as involved i mean siraj or, was out there siraj okay was, you know what i'll take that back with you know siraj i i retract what i just said with the exception <laughs> of siraj um he was actually out there campaigning but like edwin edwin campaigned harder than any libertarian i i i could almost say ever has in new york city i don't know if that's completely true but it's pretty close to true he put in he like actually put in work to his campaign where like a lot of libertarians like get on the ballot and then they're like oh yeah now everything like like that's all i needed to do right you want to know what really blew me away about edwin is his um he made masks you know, for, for his campaign. Yeah, some people make bags. He he made those. He had flyers, but he had masks. And the first batch didn't even have his name on it. It just said, not a Democrat, not a Republican, a New Yorker. And the other side was blank. That was it. I still wear that mask every time I have to go somewhere where I have to wear a mask. Nice. Because that says it. Now, he made a later batch that then say Edwin on the other side, but it still says, not a Democrat, not a Republican, 
a New Yorker. And when I, I don't even have to say my campaign slogan to people sometimes. And they'll read that. They'll be like, oh, uh, what's that mask about? And I'll be like, well, I was inspired by the Green Party candidate to run a libertarian candidate. And I'll, you know, I'll start talking about it. And people, people get really into it. Because I'm wearing Edwin's you know, campaign merch uh, while we are going out in my community campaigning for myself. And to show that we're, you know, people think that Greens and Libertarians are on opposite sides. We're not. Greens are a goal-based uh, you know, platform. We are a method-based platform. They want a green planet. Our, our platform results in a green planet. We're really on the same side. Now, within the Green Party, there's a range of views of how to get to a green planet. Some of them are green libertarians. Some of them are green socialists. You know, it, it depends. But mm-hmm. there's no reason for us to be enemies. Besides the fact that we're being screwed together by third-party ballot access laws, we should be allies because we agree on this a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, and I'm excited to see what they're doing out in Suffolk County. Uh, we're actually running a couple of campaigns. They're going to be fusion libertarian green campaigns, uh, and that'll be fun. Well, how are you? Are you doing that on the state, like federal level? I know. I think they're all like super local elections. Okay. Because for me to run, so for me to get on the libertarian line, A, we don't have a line. Let's say we still had a line. I would have to get something like 5% of the registered libertarians in my district to be like all 10 people. Um, That's what it would have been if they hadn't changed the rules in 2020. What I will have to do now is get 3,500 signatures, uh, expecting them all to be challenged by the Republicans and Democrats. I'm going to aim for 7,000 signatures. Um, just to be very safe, uh, I have to get them all signed in person, get people to write their their, their name, you know, all this type of stuff on it. And, and I was complaining about this, you know, how hard it is for me to get on the ballot, 3,500 signatures. Oh, my God. Someone in Georgia, I, Angela Pence, I think Pence, it is, is yep. running for, for Congress. Nice lady. I love her tweets. She has to get 20,000 signatures in a district the same size as mine. So they're both about 700,000 people, give or take 20K, and she has to get 20K. I have to get 3.5, and I was complaining about that. And look, I could stand at one subway stop and 3,500 people would walk by me. How do you She's do that? She's in fucking Georgia. drive hundreds of miles. Yeah. I have no idea how to do that. Uh, and the great thing about doing it here is that I can put Larry Sharp on it. I can put you know any other statewide candidate. I know Tom Queter is going to be running for a, a statewide position. And everyone knows that my two favorite people are Larry Sharp and Tom Queter. Um, so go follow them on uh, on Twitter That's and Facebook gay. and everything like that, because he's going to be running for a statewide position. We're not sure which one yet. Um, but we can all be on the, the, the ballot petitioning together. But here's the thing you know, about uh, the Green Party. If I wanted to get on the Green Party line, because they're also not a party, I would have to get 3,500 additional signatures mm-hmm. and write them down as Green Party. So in the same district, so I would now have to get 7,000 different signatures. And again, we're going for double. But I'd have to get 14,000 signatures. I'm now catching up to Angela down in Georgia for how many I have to get. And again, this is during COVID when some people just not walk up to you ever. Uh, and you need them to hand them a pen and for them to take the pen during COVID and to sign a thing, you know, to take a thing from you and then to give it back to you. And for no one to freak out during that whole process. And, you know, most people are pretty good about it. You know, maybe... Three years ago, one in a thousand people would freak out about that. Now it's probably one in ten. Uh, so it's going to be a fun process. Uh, so I, I know we're wrapping up here a little bit, but if you are in New York, if you are near New York, I don't mean New York City, I just mean New York in general, 
reach out to my campaign at how2022.com. Reach out to Larry Sharp's campaign at larrysharp.com. I think it's sharp with an E at the end. Uh, look up Tom Queter, which is spelled like quit with an E-R, but there's no quit in Queter. Uh, look him up. I don't remember his website now, but look him up. He'll, he'll be nominated for something soon. Just sign up. Don't have to give us any money. Just sign up. And when it comes time to be petitioning, we will tell you. We'll be like, hey, here's the five you know, weekend events we're doing. Here's the, you know, the 25 weekend events or weekday events we're doing. If you can show up for a few hours, if you can get 25 signatures, you are doing more to help the Libertarian Party than anyone else who goes on Twitter and has a million followers and talks about liberty or talks about you know, Ron Paul or Tom Wood or all the, all the stuff that we, we love to be purists about. If you're not on the ground getting signatures to get people on the ballot in the state where you know, social things stem from, New York is a cultural hub, like it or not, New York, LA, we're the two. If you are not helping to get people here on the ballot, I mean, not just me, all of us, you're not helping the party. You could be doing a lot more. You could give one weekend, come in, I'll let you stay in my apartment. Send me a message. I'll, I'll, I'll put you up. We got an extra room. Come get signatures. Get Tom Queter on the ballot. Get Larry Sharp on the ballot. Get all our local politicians on the ballot. If we are not showing people that we are here and we're here every time, they're not going to take us seriously. If we're not showing people that we believe in the good things that you want and we have a way to get there, they're not going to vote for us. We need people to take us seriously and then we need them to vote for us. We have to do both of those things. And again, the first thing is getting on the ballot. How2022.com, LarrySharp.com, Google Tom Queter. Don't know his website, but I'll figure it out for my next I think time. it's still Tom52.com. Tom uh, I don't think we've changed it yet. But his Twitter handle is at Thomas Queter. Go to his. Mm -hmm. oh, I didn't even remember that you were involved in this campaign. I'm not doing this for any any you know, clout here. I just I think that we, we are going to have the best lineup of candidates that the Libertarian Party has ever had in the state, especially for an off-year election. And I'm really excited. I'm not talking about myself. I look good on paper. I get excited. I have 500 followers on Twitter. <laughs> but let's be realistic here. And like I've raised like a thousand dollars. Um, so let's be real. Actually, not a bad number to be at I, so I'm, far. I'm trying to make impacts that will spread and will plant seeds and we'll do that. And like, if I can make a good showing, great. I don't want to embarrass myself, obviously. Um, but the way that we get the ballot line back is not through me. It's through Larry Sharp. Uh, he is our gubernatorial candidate. He needs to get two percent. He needs to be on the Libertarian ballot line if he gets endorsed by another line. There's a long game here. Like I. I'm here to spread some ideas. I'm here to talk. I'm here to get some attention for the uh, the party. I'd love to win. Uh, my goal is to beat the Republican, whoever ends up being. Uh, but I'd love to win. But if I don't, the like the fallback is for us to get our ballot line back, and that's Larry Sharp. You have to go to LarrySharp.com. He he is he is the reason there's a Libertarian Party in New York right now. He's the only reason that I have 500 followers. Statistically, I would have 100 followers. Because in my surveys and different events we've done together, 80% of the people at those events became libertarians because of Larry Sharp. So you need to go to LarrySharp.com. You need to give him your money. Like, this is this is it. He is the libertarian. Name one other libertarian on Joe Rogan. Name one other. And who is the biggest person? Okay, but that's more recently. And he's not a candidate right now. Name one other libertarian running for office now. Okay, yeah, no, I can't. The and, and <laughs> whatever you think of Dave Smith, I know he's yeah. very controversial. Sometimes he gets taken out of context. Sometimes he says dumb shit. Um, I'll I'll come out mm -hmm. and say it. Um, but whatever whatever you want to say about him, like he 
He like, has been on Rogan three times. He's been on Rogan, but he's also a comedian. And like, I'm not saying that to, to, to put him down, but like, and he, I think he would be a great candidate as far as getting excitement for the party. But I don't think it's a way to get people to take the party seriously. Now, people could have made the same argument against AOC, and she did great. So I may be talking out my ass here. I mean, she's um, not really I, making the Democrats be taken more seriously, though. And she's she's got momentum behind her. I mean, in the district for a time, at least while she was initially running, she got a lot of people to take the party more seriously because we we're getting the corruption out and we we're we we're you know, overthrowing Crowley and whatnot, and you know, people are really excited. Um, again, this is nothing personally against Dave Smith. I did not like I I could not watch that interview with him uh, and Fuentes. I the the way that Fuentes would say the great Jewish conspiracy that's coming to overthrow us. And I know Dave is Jewish and I know it, it sounds like nitpicking. And I know that for Dave, it's different because he knew that this was coming and he didn't feel the need to address it because everyone knows where he stands. But if you're watching that fresh and most people are going to be watching Libertarian fresh and you see the other person in a conversation be like, Jews run the world uh, and they're evil. And you're just like, oh, and then you just go on to make a Libertarian argument. That might be the best approach if you're in a room together, but when you're showing it to the world, it's not. Uh, that was really difficult to watch for me. I, I thought it was awful. I said, this guy's entire presidential ambitions are gone now. There's no way that Dave Smith can be taken seriously as a presidential contender after that that video. That's gonna be everything that comes out. And I think it's too bad because I, I found out who he was from Rogan. I found out who he was from watching him on Michael Malice and I really liked him a lot. Uh, He's way too much into the Twitter drama, um, but he, he would have been a great candidate. But now he, I think he's said too much. And I know he's a comedian and, and we have to say, oh, there's a comedian's license. And I, I, I accept that to an extent. But that was bad. And I, I can just see the, the clips from that coming out where Fuentes says something and then he laughs. And it just goes to you know black and white. goes, Do you want your presidential candidate saying this? Like that's what the ads would be if he ever got taken seriously. Yeah, I mean, Trump I would have racist newsletters that he never even wrote, and that got him thrown out. By the way, another thing that David Trump did—that was his story. Interesting, um, interesting, fun. Uh, I mean, I so like I'm I'm not Team Dave Smith either. Uh, however, I really don't think that like any of that matters. Um, like not to just like take everything you just said and like kind of toss it out the window. No, but like, no. but first of all, uh, like like he's calmed down both on Twitter and on his show and and in everything. Um, like this isn't the that wasn't the first conversation he's had with Frontes. He's had Frontes on his show. He's had Cantwell on his show. He's I'm pretty sure he's had Stephen Molyneux on his show. Um, like like he's calmed but, but, down. The last one you listed is the least offensive one on there. Agree. I mean, Stefan Molyneux at least is not making a moral judgment. He's about you know people based on their race or ethnicity. He's saying these are the numbers. This is science. I think he's wrong, but he's not making a moral judgment. Fuentes is making a moral judgment. They oh, okay. people are bad because of their ethnicity or as a result of their ethnicity. And I know you say it won't matter. And, and part of it is like, oh well, Trump said yeah, blah blah blah. But Trump already had all the power and momentum. Everyone knew Donald Trump. Everyone knew he was an oaf. People are expecting the libertarians to be better because we're we're underdogs. Underdogs have to be better. And I'm not saying Dave Smith is a bad guy or he's a bad candidate, but the moment that stuff comes out, it, it's gone. That, that, that was, I thought that was a horrible decision to do. I hate saying deplatform people. I, you know, I'm not saying don't talk to people who are horrible. 
I love the idea that like the Young Turks would have David Duke on. Be like, no, you're a fucking moron. But in the debate where the Young Turks had David Duke on, and he said, no, you're a moron. At one point, Czech Cenk Uger said, yeah, that's what we should do. Whatever David Duke says. And they literally made campaign commercials against him where he's like, I agree with David Duke. Even though he was clearly being sarcastic, they got him to drop out of the election over an out-of-context, clearly sarcastic statement. I don't even like the guy, but it was, it was such a, a railroading. Imagine what, they have so much material with Dave between his show. I mean, that was just the, the, the one interview I've watched in the last like year and a half was the one with Fuentes. I heard it was getting a lot of, uh, a lot of heat, and I was like, oh, God, okay. Um, but among you know him doing a purposely edgy show, which you have every right to do and you should do, uh, the m- amount of material there to say libertarians are just date raping, racist, blah blah blah. They have the ammo there, and we shouldn't we shouldn't be focusing on someone for whom which there for whom there is ammo to be slung or to be shot at them. That's just lined up ready to go. I'm sure he's a really nice guy. I love the guy. Dave, if you're watching, I'll have to come on your show. Um, and I'll, I'll take <laughs> He's not watching. <laughs> but like, it, it's because I got really excited about him for a while. And and a lot of people who are like the more uh, careful libertarians, let's say, were like, be careful. Like, you know, he, he's a good guy, but he says, to, and then I started seeing it. Like, I, I did a whole episode with uh, Angelo Veltri for Angelo for Liberty. Um, just mm-hmm. talking about homelessness after he had uh, you know comments about homelessness. I, I knew what he meant, and I think people were taking him out of context. But I thought it was important to talk about homelessness and how it's not just, like we were talking about before, the crazy guy in the subway. Most of it's people living in shelters with no access to the Internet who can't send their kids to school and are getting screwed over mm-hmm. uh, and being monitored by the government while that's happening. Um, so like, things like that, it's going to add up. And and. We, we got here from me saying that Larry Sharp is the best thing. And I, I don't want this to sound like a, a, a crap on Dave, Dave Smith's episode. Um, but that does, we don't have that with Larry Sharp. Like, like Larry, I don't want to say Larry is pure and Larry is good, but like there's no crazy statement on video of Larry Sharp saying something, even in a comedic setting, mm-hmm. anywhere close to what we have with a lot of our other candidates. Um, and that's great. And he's running for an important offer. He's well known. He's already got traction. As I said, he's been on Rogan. Uh, you know, that's how we got to this. We, we were doing the, the, the Rogan branch there. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't have any of that dirt, and he's yeah, he's he's just great. Like I, I love doing events with him. I, I love watching his events. I watch I watch his live. Like he's the only person I watch like podcasts of anymore. Yeah. You know, part of it's very topical. I'm hurt. Well, I mean, you do them a lot less frequently. Uh, I made a joke the other day that you know we we still demand exist in a three-dimensional universe experiencing the fourth dimension of time therefore larry sharp is currently live on facebook yeah that's just yeah i don't quite like i really love talking and i really love the sound of my own voice but not nearly as much as larry does so i do not do my show quite as often as he does well, um, and i hope to never let me just say this i hope to never be live as often as larry sharp is well, let, let me put it this way. I, what I've learned from doing this campaign, as fun as stuff like this is, is that it's a lot of work and it's really stressful. And I'm constantly just thinking, like, I could be doing more. And this is really important to me. And I, I don't want to, like, drop the ball on it or be a paper candidate like we were talking about before. I don't want that. I don't want to embarrass myself. And I, I want to make good change. God damn it. It's a lot of work. Like, it is so much work in addition to having a real job. And so, like, 
if, but if you're going to do it, do it all the way. And someone who is the, the only libertarian I know uh, in New York uh, who is currently doing it all the way is Larry. He is running a full-time campaign. There are no other libertarians who can run a full-time campaign. I don't know where he got his money from uh, or even if he has any money, but he is running a full-time campaign across the entire state all over every day. He is working more than a full-time job. And it's not something that most people can do. And so, A, he's our gubernatorial candidate, so he can get us the ballot access back in the future. B, he's the hardest working person in the, the in the libertarian field. Uh, and and C, like this is New York. Like <laughs> it's not like some like even purer person is just going to show up as a libertarian and have name recognition. I don't know if there is someone pure, but it like that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like Larry is our standard bearer. We we have to get you know behind him. We have to be constantly zombies having him on live stream at all time uh if you don't have larry on live stream in the background on mute you're not helping the party uh you should get on it you'll forget paying your dues just just have larry's live stream open and have it constantly playing yeah uh well before we wrap up i want to give you one more chance to like shout out uh your campaign how people can find you how people can get involved donate all those fun things well, first, I want to thank you, and I want to thank everyone who's watching, because this has been a, uh, a rambling, fun uh, time. I was telling David before we got on that I had like a 13 and a half hour workday today, uh, you know, writing motions, talking with clients, going into court. And, you know, as, as much as this is work, when I do the interviews, it is a little bit of fun, because we get to you know, go back and forth and thank you. It was fun. I think it was a good use of time. Um, if you're watching, if you want to help, a how2022.com. It's very, you know, it's very easy to give money. You can give ten bucks. You can give twenty-five bucks. Let's say you give twenty-five. That's like a hundred flyers I can give out. So that's maybe three or four votes. I appreciate that, and like every little bit helps. So yeah, I, I don't know if the math is, but but you're helping. But for the Libertarian Party, it's not about money. We're never going to have enough money for what we need. If you live near New York, if you live in New York, go to my website how2022.com, fill out the form for the volunteer. If you don't live anywhere near New York City, go to Larry Sharp's website, go to LarrySharp.com, fill out his volunteer form, TomFor52.com, whatever it is. Just show up in New York between 419, April 19th, and May 30th. That's when we're out getting petitions. Find a guy in a blue suit and a yellow tie, and he'll be getting petitions for a libertarian. Ask him for a pad to help out. That's what we need. We, we just need bodies. Like once we get over that hump and get on the on the ballot. We can talk about money a little bit more and you know it'd be nice to hire people to be able to do this but it's a lot cheaper for you just to come here than for us to hire someone so reach out to your local campaign reach out to your local libertarian party in a county or in a town um ask them how you can help one day it, it can make all the difference if, if 20 people out there give one day we're, we're on the ballot we're done um so again how2022.com at jonathan c how uh I'll just say it's J O N A T H A N, not J O H N, but that's fine. Uh, <laughs> so if you're looking at the screen there, I fixed it on everything but the overlay because oh. I made the overlay and the graphic and everything like three or four weeks ago now. Like when we first scheduled it, I already got me pictures like really quickly. So I, I like made everything. Yeah. So this episode's been like ready to go for a while. And then after I made everything, realized I spelled your name wrong on everything and then had to go back and change it. And I hadn't noticed the overlay. Everything else is spelled right. Yeah, well, we'll end with this. This is Clara. Um, Hi, Clara. What my wife and I have been doing is rescuing the cats from our back alley. 
we fix all the adults and we take in the kittens and this is one of them you know she's now an adult and she's not a kitten anymore she's a good kitty and so we fix the entire alley we've we've you know tnr'd uh five or six cats taken in four or five kittens adopted them out um if you're not into politics and you just like watch us horsing horsing around and making fun of us but you still want to do something good uh, google tnr trap neuter return uh, or trap fix return uh, see if there's a local place where you can help manage a local cat colony because cats are they're pets and the only reason they exist in the city is because humans have let them out and they suffer out there and they have dozens and dozens of babies and they all freeze to death and doing tnr you can make them warm you can make them happy uh, you can make it so they're not just constantly having babies that are dying and if you catch them as a baby then you get a cat you get a free cat and they're even on my tie no yeah it's that bad uh, and I'm wearing this tie because you, you used that uh, photo of me. <laughs> so, so I went with that. So if you're just an animal lover and you hate libertarians, just Google TNR group. Community Cats is one of them. They're they're great people. Um, but if you do like libertarians, how 2022.com, send me five bucks. It'll help out. All right. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on. This was an awesome show. Uh, we got lots of topics in there. Uh, that's good. I, you you let me rant, man, and that's uh, that's either going to be great when I go back and rewatch this, or I'm going to be like, why didn't he stop me? I, how did I get to the Federal Reserve from like uh, talking about directions to the mall? <laughs> For any if any libertarian should be able to get to talking about the Federal Reserve when they're asked for directions to a mall, like that's a logical like thing that we should all be able to get to. Two steps of separation from anything internationally it's not like kevin bacon the federal reserves everywhere we'll do an episode on that later right all right guys well thank you so much for watching this if you haven't done so already go to at jonathan see how on twitter follow him uh and then go to his facebook follow that um then go to his website how2022.com give him some money um and then like this video Click the link. If you're watching this on Facebook or YouTube, click the link and go over to Odyssey and like it over there um, and and watch all of the following streams from Odyssey because fuck YouTube, fuck Facebook. They both suck. And we'll be back here uh, tomorrow night with Kingsley Edwards, the founder and CEO of Float, uh, which, if you don't know, is a crypto and blockchain-based social media platform that's coming up to fight Twitter and Facebook which suck. So, uh, you know, we just had Kaufman from Odyssey on. Now we get to have Kingsley from Float on. We're really trying to promote these non-big tech monopoly giant horrible shits. So go on over to Odyssey and Float. Follow us over there. Come back tomorrow night, 9 p.m. freedom time, 8 p.m. corn time. Uh, until then, keep up the fight. Thank you, man. Thank you. Shut up and sit down.